I'm so excited for uh, what 2021 will hold for us. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what direction this year takes. I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could be optimistic. I'll be realistic. That's there fine. you go. We need one of each. <laughs> we need one of each. <laughs> We're here because of the music. We are banding. I like Huey Lewis on the news on the news. I like this song. It's just a jump to the land of the land. Sweet. Love this one. Love this one. Hey guys, how are you? Hey, I missed you all so much. <laughs> And we welcome you to the very first episode of Soundtrack City for 2021. Yay! It only took us a little bit because I suck. No, I'm kidding. Um, my family just had a lot of um, health issues, a.k.a. COVID ran rapid through our house, but we are all healed and better and slowly but surely getting better. And uh, it was necessary for me to be the caretaker, and I really appreciate your guys' understanding for that. But I missed you, and we're back, and we're ready to start 2021 off. Uh, I'm not even going to dance around it. We have to talk about Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, gosh, yes. Okay, so, Nisa, I know you had tickets Christmas Day. Yes, I did. Now, I want to, this is not a sponsored show, but I do want to give shouts out to one of my favorite theaters, the Alamo Draft House. Um, I was really reluctant to go see the movie in theaters. I kind of kept telling myself, like, well, it might actually be worth going to see in a theater, you know, and, and considering it was going to be available in theaters and HBO, like, I knew I was going to watch it one way or another on the day that it came out, right? Exactly. What Alamo Draft House did, which is really cool, is when you buy your seat, they automatically close off the seats on your left, the two seats on your left, and the two seats on your right. And so you're basically in this nice little bubble. I looked at all the showings for Wonder Woman on Christmas Day, and I selected the seat that allowed me to have my own little corner in the very back with no one around me, no one in front of me, no one behind me, no one on left or right of me. I felt very safe. I felt very secure. I brought my own wipes, and they have leather chairs. So you know I clean that shit. Top to bottom. Oh, I know you did. Because <laughs> Misa's not playing any fucking games. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not oh. playing any fucking games. <laughs> and I watched Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas Day in a movie theater. Uh, but when I went to the theater, that was actually my second time that I watched it. <laughs> I watched it that morning. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay, so I um, didn't go to the theater, but I did watch it on HBO Christmas Day. Yeah. Yeah, same. And I know that I was kind of weary to talk to Misa about it because she is such a fan. But this is what I love about Misa um, because even though she is a super fan of Wonder Woman, she's not afraid to be unbiased and honest about the movie. <laughs> and that being said, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Wonder Woman 1984 was not good. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> You didn't sugarcoat it at all. I have to be honest. I was on, I'm honest with myself. I'm, I'm being honest with you guys. It does not benefit anyone for me to lie to you about how I feel about this movie. 
Right. Wonder Woman 1984 was not great. And I remember I, I talked to Frankie about this a couple of days ago. We did like a prelim kind of scheduling uh, phone call real quick. And she wanted to know my honest to God, true from the heart thoughts on the film. And I, in turn, was reluctant to tell Frankie <laughs> how I felt about Wonder Woman 1984 because she is such a fan of you know, the, the the MCU, the Marvel Universe movies. Yes. <laughs> and, um, but same thing, like Frankie, Frankie can take the criticism. Frankie knows that it's there. Frankie can take it. But that's how much Frankie loves Marvel. So it's the same thing. So I, like when I, sh- when I shit on Marvel, I'm really kind of exaggerating my hate for Marvel uh, we are going to do a DC versus Marvel episode sometime in the future, by the way. Yes. <laughs> it's happening. Yeah, it's going to happen. So I, Frankie was like, what, do, what did you think of it? And I was like, I don't want to tell you. She's like, no, 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 tell me. I was like, I don't want to tell you because I know my audience. She's like, no, 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 tell me. So, guys, that was three times. She insisted three times. And I that's, that's, that's the magic number. So <laughs> I caved. And I, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm not protecting anybody's feelings here. And I said, right now, in my opinion, I would put Wonder Woman 1984 up to par with a Marvel movie, which sounds like a compliment, <laughs> but, oh, honey. I love this chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> like, you more or less agree with me, even though you, you are obviously a little, you may or may not be biased toward Marvel. Even you can say, like, yeah, Wonder Woman didn't grab my attention, right? Um, yeah, I agree. I really tried. I really tried. It was not It was not for me. Yeah, yeah. And what sucks is that the first one was so good. Like, I feel like it's oh. a pretty unanimous opinion, right? Oh, yeah. No, I loved the first one. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot about Wonder Woman 1984 that was problematic. There was a lot about it that just didn't make sense. Some of the characters were really unnecessary. The dialogue was really shitty. It felt like five different stories mashed up into one that wasn't cohesive. Again, guys, reminder, I'm talking about Wonder Woman 1984 and not a Marvel movie. But but I, if I may, if I may, I don't know if this is okay. Please. I do have a list of things I liked and didn't like. I figured you did. It sounded like you were reading from a list, so... I had some notes. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, should we go through the bad stuff first? Yeah, let's knock out the bad. Okay, here we go. Cons about Wonder Woman 1984. Things I did not like. Hippolyta and her accent. I didn't like how we didn't see any hint of the origin of the stone. I would have liked this, the stone to have some scenes similar to how, like, the Jumanji game board had at the beginning of Jumanji, how it travels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. That would have been cool, but we got nothing. It just showed up in a jewelry store, and that was it. I fucking hate the mall scene, especially when the robber holds the girl over the balcony. That scene goes on for far too fucking long. It drags way too long. There are, like, six different people telling him to put her down, and nobody actually does anything about it. I timed it. He holds that girl over the railing for 35 seconds. 34 unnecessary seconds. Yeah, that's right. So annoying. Um, The robbers look like idiots. Uh, Everything in the mall, I think, probably looked better on paper. 
I get it that they wanted this little girl to see a female superhero do cool stuff, but all those little moments with her were just really unnecessary and kind of cheesy, in my opinion. Every man in this script is written like trash. Maxwell's kid is annoying as fuck. Aside from a few papers on his desk, we get no background about Max seeking out this stone or how he heard about this stone. There's a lot of missed opportunities. Certain characters that get used in the movie but not to their full potential. Mm -hmm. And certain stories that didn't go in the direction that are way more interesting in the comic books. So I guess that just, I mean, that happens a lot. That's any movie. But it just, it sucks when you get a taste of it and then like nothing at all. The whole Steve Trevor body possession thing is really problematic, which that's, I'm going to have to get into that in the future when I talk about the soundtrack which one day, which can we say for a moment, please, that this was a waste of setting it in the 80s if you weren't going to use a soundtrack to its full potential. I mean, they did the full 80s like montage dressing Steve in like all the 80s gear and there was no music there. And even in the trailer, they used a remix of Blue Monday. And then in the movie, they used like maybe three 80s songs. And only one of them was like really noticeable because the lyrics were significant. That's so sad. Aside from that, like I, I like the score was great, but I really expected it to be like half and half. Yes. I was disappointed. That was probably my biggest disappointment. Definitely. Like it was such a wasted opportunity. So yeah, I yeah, I just I didn't like Maxwell's kid. I thought he was unnecessary and it pains me to say it, but Steve Trevor was also unnecessary. Think back, he doesn't do anything memorable. He doesn't do anything important. All the dialogue that he says during his fight scenes is fucking garbage. He just follows Diana around the entire 2 hours and 30 minutes of this movie, which I will admit the time stamp did scare me at first, but it really doesn't feel like two hours and 30 minutes to me. I was never bored during this movie, but there were parts that I just really did not like. The fucking kids in the street in Cairo, that was stupid. I It, it made that entire scene anticlimactic. Then she saves them. Then she straight up flattens and lands on them, which that scene was dumb too because they were very obviously dolls. It was just really sloppy, like, camera work and props and just, it was just bad. It was just bad. It, everyone kind of keeps saying this and I, I got to admit, like, I feel it way, I feel this way too, but only to an extent. Like, it is kind of crazy that Diana would hold on to Steve for that long. It just, it just, like, I, I get it. I get her holding on to him. And, I mean, we're not saying that she didn't sleep with anyone since then. I mean, we don't, they don't really, like, disclose that 100%. Uh, I think it's debatable. I think it's debatable because I feel like it's implied, but it's not 100%. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see her, like, fucking around with people, but I don't think she actually got fucked. Yeah. I, you know what? You're probably right knowing Diana. This is, again, the, these are things we're going to have to get into later. <laughs> uh, but obviously, Wonder Woman is bisexual, so she had options. Yeah. I don't know. Again, I, I don't hold it against her because I think we've all been there. I would definitely agree. One way or another. Definitely agree. And um, so, I mean, that, that part didn't bother me that she held on to him. Yeah, I also have it on my pros list. The climax was anticlimactic, in my opinion. Um, I never gave a fuck about the kid. 
I don't feel like Max ever gave a fuck about the kid. So at the end, when Max is doing his redemption speech, I don't feel like it meant anything because I don't really feel like I never got the impression that he cared. A hundred percent. He was like a pawn, you know? Yeah, yeah. He To me, the kid was just another person to, like, uphold his image toward, but it didn't actually, like, have any personal stake on him. Like, I would have been more satisfied at the end if he still brushed off his kid and he was still trying to find the next big scheme and his kid still felt unloved and abandoned. Like, ugh, there's so much wrong with that character. At least it was Pedro Pascal, who was one of the few good things about this film. So adorable. Yeah, just whatever the the whole cheetah origin is well it, it depends because there have been multiple people who are cheetah but the barbara minerva origin story is really different from that and i just again i just feel like the source material stuff tends to be more interesting and it, it would be easy to translate on film i don't understand why it doesn't happen more often because people just take liberties that don't need to be taken <laughs> that's fair to say i feel like this had too many liberties taken well, he did have three different writers, so I don't feel like every, everyone had, like, one vision in mind, so everyone was just trying to jam their ideas into place. That that makes sense, with that amount of writers. It didn't fall together. Yeah, there aren't great things about it, but there are things that I do love about it. It made me cry seven times. Um, <laughs> I've watched it four times now. I thought the Invisible Jet scene was beautiful, even though the, the way they got it was stupid. I thought the Invisible Jet scene was beautiful. It blew my mind. I, I watched it at home first, and I couldn't wait to see it in theaters. And it was just like, I thought it was so cool. I thought it was really cool. Ooh, I bet that looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah done on the big screen. That, that I would like yeah. to see, yeah. Um, it did have a great score. Kristen Wiig is adorable. Uh, you know, I love her even more now than ever. Um Pedro Pascal, again, he's amazing. And I love, oh, man, like, my heart melts when he meets Barbara and he's like, Miss Minerva. And, like, the way he says it, it just sounds like melted chocolate. <laughs> oh, man, he's just so, mm, he's so smooth. Um, but, yeah, man, there are, I mean, there are great things about it, too. But it's just, for me, it's like a 5 out of 10. And I will watch it again, and I will watch it again, and I will watch it again. But it, it's not, it's not high up. <laughs> it's not high up for me at all. I feel like that's fair. I mean, you're still watching it. You're still giving it love. Yeah, yeah. You know? I still love the character, even though the character does things that are very, very out of character in this movie. I also wondered if it's like, maybe I'm the problem. Cause like, you know, I've just kind of been like in and out of these funks and I'm like, maybe I just don't identify with this hero anymore. Maybe that's why I like the villains better. Like the, at least in this movie, the villains had purpose. So eh, whatever. I don't want to take any more time on this. <laughs> You're funny. Any Hooters, let's move on to more important things, guys, shall we? With that, we do welcome you back. If we were recording in person, to my left would be Frankie. And to my right would be Misa. Hey, and we're here, and it's 2021, and it looks like the dumpster is still on fire, so we might as well listen to some good soundtracks while we're at it. Yes, and you know what, guys? I just want to go on the record and say that um, I miss recording with you in person, Misa. I do miss it too. 
it, it, there are some things about recording in person that are so much easier than recording remote. Yeah. And then plus, I mean, in addition to the fact that like, I do miss like seeing you, like I miss, <laughs> I, I, if, in case that wasn't already implied. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I miss everything that comes with recording with you, meaning like being at your house and we take our shots together and the elements of mystery are there and stuff. And like, we've been a little more lax about our rules. So like we knew each other's spooky season picks and stuff. Yeah, there's there's certain things that we've adapted to, but there are certain things that like I'm I'm ready for us to be in the same room again and you know, sharing gummies and Yes. Oh my god, tequila gummies. Oh yeah, all the little things that we used to do where we could like be next to each other, like within six feet of each other. Yes, I'm I'm hoping that um, you know, our numbers will start going down drastically and it'll be safe again um, so that we can record together. I would love to think that, but there was a Bow Wow concert over the weekend in Houston and people went. Really? Of all people to risk your life for. Bow Wow? Bow Wow, who I can't even call a one-hit wonder because I can't name anything he ever did. Um... Wow, where was it? It was at a, I don't remember the name of the club, but it was in Houston and it was packed. What the hell? Of all people. Apparently he apologized. I don't give a shit. Oh, I'm sorry I shot the person who died. That doesn't make it okay. Yeah, forgive me. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't believe it. What the hell? It's gross. People are gross. I mean, even, um, like, I have tickets for several concerts that are just TBA right now because it's not safe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I know you were, like, you were supposed to go. You already had, like, I think six concerts lined up at the beginning of 2020 that still haven't happened, right? Yeah, um, I had uh, Ginger, the 1975, Deftones, Elton John, and... Um, I was supposed to go see Fleetwood Mac also. So if you can't tell, I'm, a, I'm very eclectic with the music I listen to also. But I mean, it's I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Like, I wouldn't be able to enjoy myself if I even tried to go right now because I would be so worried. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, you can't – there. I feel like there's nothing you can do right now that you're not having to second guess one way or another. No, there's really not. And, I mean, I know people are like, oh – the football games are happening and things like that. But, I mean, even wrestling was smarter than football. They didn't let anyone in the arenas at first, right? No, not at first. And then they did, and then they stopped, and now it's all virtual. So, like, all, there's just a bunch of screens where the audience would be, mm -hmm. and people are, like, they're able to watch, like, and they're on with their video cameras. So it just looks like a bunch of faces in the crowd. But it's still safer. Yeah. Definitely, because there's no one in person except for the wrestlers and the refs. If only other people were smart as wrestlers. Well, I mean, to <laughs> oh, careful, oh, careful, because oh, making people because, mad. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, no. I'm just saying, like, uh, they're not as smart as you may. <laughs> they're not as smart as you think, because there there have been a number of wrestlers who went ahead and still gathered, 
Jericho played a concert at a really big motorcycle rally you probably heard about over the summer. I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he got COVID, and he just now admitted it. I hate that they try to hide it. Like, just be honest. Well, he the thing is, like, he downplayed it, and people were calling him out about it, and he got all riled up about it because that's just how he is for some reason. He just gets triggered easily, I guess, especially on Twitter. Then it wasn't until recently that he was like, yeah, I had it. I was asymptomatic. And he, he actually had the gall to say, don't worry about it, guys. It's not a death sentence. <gasps> oh, I've lost all respect. It's a little unfortunate when your heroes turn out to be assholes. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, you know who is incredibly smart, one of a kind, doesn't enjoy large crowds. He's perfect for COVID. Do you know who I'm talking about, Misa? <gasps> who? My dream man, Jack Skellington. None other. Oh! I am super, super psyched to be talking about the amazing Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm sorry, let me say it correctly. Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Gotta give him, <laughs> you know, his credit. I, this has been, like, one of my childhood favorite movies forever. I didn't realize just how much memorabilia I have and I guess it's just I don't like I see it so much I don't think about it um but I even have like a special little Christmas tree that stays up all year round that is just Jack Skellington ornaments and an oogie boogie like popper I have tons of like cups and mugs and silverware and crock pots I have like custom paintings and custom drawings and Funko Pops and clothing like I didn't realize how obsessed I was because it's just like second nature to me. So I've I've waited to cover this movie just because it is so near and dear to my heart. And if you know Misa and I, we like to make sure we do our favorites well. And I didn't feel like I was ready to cover it until now. Plus, I it's for whatever reason, I've been watching it much more frequently because I just feel like um, it's almost more relatable to me right now. So, and I don't know if that's kind of like Jack's story um that I feel like I relate to but I feel like it's relatable to a lot of people on different levels especially at different ages so I'm just I'm super excited to talk about this movie um it is a score it's one of my very favorite scores um and I hope I do that justice I know Misa is my queen of covering scores but uh-huh. Don't uh, do that. You You're are. just as amazing. You've you've covered scores and it was awesome. You know I, I I'm not as good as Misa, but I'm gonna try to stand up to her. And oh um Stop. this movie it's it's harder to really do these movies because they aren't like um your traditional scores, like they do have lyrics. So because you know Danny Elfman put he wrote all the lyrics, all the music for the soundtrack. Um but so I did really want to cover like a lot of the background. Because this movie is record-breaking for its cinematography, for the soundtrack, for just everything that they went through to make this movie, because it is stop motion, just amazing. From Henry Selick, who was the director, to Tim Burton, who created and conceived Jack Skellington, this is just, it's a phenomenal movie. And I know not everyone loves it because not everyone is a Tim Burton fan, but this is just absolutely one of my favorite animated movies. So let's go ahead and jump in. I am covering 
1993 American stop-motion animated musical dark fantasy film that was directed by Henry Selick. This was his um, directorial debut. He did Coraline. He did James and the Giant Peach. Um, he did one that I haven't heard of called Wendell and the Wild. That one's coming out this year. And actually, that one has one of your favorite, Jordan Peele, in it. Oh, no way. Like a voice? Yeah. Oh, is it stop motion too? It is. Ooh, okay, okay. So that one should be interesting. But yeah, so this was his um, directorial debut. Um, he met with Tim Burton, who, like I said, created Jack Skellington, um, kind of sketched him out. And he created him from this poem that he actually wrote when he was working with Disney. And he just kind of sat on him for a while. Like, he didn't really do anything with him. Um, he did approach Disney after a while. And they told him that it was just a little too scary for what Disney was doing back then. Um, they didn't think that it would do well with their, you know, typical once upon a time, happily ever after, you know, let me take all those Christian Anderson and Grimm's fairy tales and make them, you know, cute. Tim sat on it. However, Disney finally agreed to let him go ahead and do something with it. But he was busy. Um, directing other movies so that's why he didn't direct it he just kind of created and kind of oversaw what Henry was doing and he did work closely with Danny to create the soundtrack so he kind of like drew pictures for him and Danny and his masterfulness was able to literally make the entire score from pictures it's awesome it's awesome I'm sorry I'm jumping ahead the poem is quite long so I'm not going to read all of it, but I did want to read a couple of the stanzas, if that's okay. Uh, so this is the poem that he wrote when he was part of the Disney animating team. This actually has been published into a children's storybook that is an amazing 3D pop-up book that I do happen to own. Um, and so I'm going to have to send Nisa a picture so she can post that on the blog also. So I'm just going to read um, the first three stanzas, if that's okay. It is quite long. It was late one fall in Halloween land, and the air had quite a chill. Against the moon, a skeleton sat alone upon a hill. He was tall and thin with a bat bow tie. Jack Skellington was his name. He was tired and bored in Halloween land. Everything was always the same. I'm sick of the scaring, the terror, the fright. I'm tired of being something that goes bump in the night. I'm bored with leering my horrible glances, and my feet hurt from dancing those skeleton dances. I don't like graveyards, and I need something new. There must be more to life than just yelling boo. So that is where I'm going to stop. And I'm going to let Misa post the entirety of the poem. It is quite long. It's like 37 stanzas. Oh, wow. So, um, and of course, it is written by Tim Burton. It was written in uh, 1983, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and Tim wrote it after kind of seeing like how Halloween melted into the Christmas decor in stores. And he saw kind of like a, a shelf full of Christmas and Halloween together. And that's what sparked this whole fascination with um, Halloween becoming Christmas. And that's where he created Jack Skellington, of course. And he had to Tim Burton it. So that is where that came from. So even as far back as the 80s, Christmas has been trying to push Halloween <laughs> out of the way indoors. And, and it, I get it. Relatable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said it happened in a Sears, a Sears Roebuck. So, 
oh my gosh, fucking Sears. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, it wasn't just, you know, um, <laughs> Hobby Lobbies and all the other stores. I mean, it's been happening for forever and people just can't seem to give Halloween the amazingness that it deserves, the recognition that it deserves. It's, it's all time, the respect, if you will. Yes. So, so that's where this whole story um, came from. And like I said, Disney kind of sat on it for a while. And then finally, they decided to go ahead and let it be released through Touchstone Pictures um, because it was too dark and too scary for the time. But of course, after they realized how much money it grossed over all of the years, and that is over $91.5 million, um, and that does not include its cult following and all of its new money that it continues to make, that's when Disney went ahead and reissued it and took over it and made it officially a Disney Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> it's got a long title. Um, this movie, of course, has some of our traditional, you know, Tim likes to use a lot of the same people. And uh, some of those actors will be repeats from the same people who were in Beetlejuice, actually, which I covered, when was that last, last Christmas, I'm sorry, last Halloween, correct? Yeah. So Catherine O'Hara is no other than Sally, who's like this um, rag doll character. She is the love interest of Jack. Um, we have Glenn Shaddix, who was also in Beetlejuice. He plays the mayor of Halloween Town. Ken Cage as Oogie Boogie, Ed Ivory as Santa Claus. William Hickey as Dr. Finkelstein. He's kind of like the mad scientist and the father of Sally, although it's like a weird father, not like a a real dad but like I don't know I feel like he created her to be a lover not her daughter not his daughter I get it kind of like uh yeah kind of like the creator but also kind of seen as the father because it gave her life but not really yeah exactly thank you thank you for saying that in a not weird way <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and then um we do have two voices for Jack Skellington the speaking voice was done by Chris Sarandon and Jack Skellington is known as our Pumpkin King of Halloween Town. The singing voice was done, of course, by Danny Elfman, who is the film's composer. Uh, he wasn't originally, like, chosen to do the voice, but then they realized that Chris could not sing. And so that's when Danny went ahead and stepped in as the voice of Jack. I'm surprised Chris Landon can't sing. I thought he was, like, a triple threat. No. I know. I was actually surprised, too. I didn't. I guess I didn't realize like why Chris wasn't used, um, but that's that's why. Danny did a great job of translating Jack Skellington voice into a singing voice. Disney Plus started doing this kind of behind the scenes, um, and that's where I got a lot of my information because again, I wanted to be really heavy on the information. So I'm sorry if I kind of do a lot of talking this episode, but they literally showed how Danny saying behind the scenes and you can see him like just the way he embodies Jack and those highs and those lows and his whole he's just a whole method singer like uh it's it's amazing so I'm definitely gonna have to give you that information so those of you who have Disney plus you can watch that awesome film um and all the background information about Jack Skellington and they show just so much incredible uh, history behind the filming and how it broke tons of um, stop motion like for the time this this movie was truly pushing the envelope and taking stop motion where it had never been before 
Um, and a lot of that is because of Henry. He wanted to make sure that he really pushed that envelope and he want, he had a very unique version uh, vision for this movie. He wanted to make this the most modern and sophisticated movie and to make sure that it crossed several generations. And I think he absolutely succeeded in doing that. Yeah, yeah, this is one of those timeless movies. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that he says. And it, it, what I love about it is when you watch kind of those interviews with him, he said that, um, you know, Tim gave him full range to do whatever. And Tim was blown away by Henry. And he said he didn't feel like any pressure from Tim. Like he didn't feel like Tim had this distinct vision and it had to be Tim's way and it had to do this. Um, it was a very fluid, very natural kind of relationship between them working together. Um, and it created a wonderful masterpiece. So this is considered Disney's first stop motion feature. There are so many different props and scenes that are considered um, Disney first. And so they are housed in Disney archives and basically are priceless. Again, everything is based off of Tim's drawings from the poem. The original Jack was actually sculpted in 1982 by Rick Henricks. And he is basically one of Disney's like top animator sculptors. He's actually still, that 1982 Jack is still hanging around in the archives in almost perfect condition. Every now and then they have to go and redo certain pieces on him, but he is like this amazing three foot tall clay figure that's so delicate and in almost pristine condition. I just, I find that fascinating. They used a lot of 3D puppet builders. Um, Rick and Tim met from working on The Fox and the Hound. And it, for a little fun fact, Tim Burton actually is one of the animators from The Fox and the Hound. That's cool. Which is such a different style for him, right? It's kind of, uh, it's interesting to imagine Tim Burton drawing Disney-fied characters. Yeah, like he drew, um, he uh, what was his name? I can't even remember. Todd. The fox. Aww, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The adorable little fox. So yeah, that was his character that he brought to life and just so different from what we see in, in you know, Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas and all of the other, you know, things that he's come up with. Just very, very Tim, like Tim Burton has a distinct style. Yeah. Very, very. And uh, I, you don't think of Fox and the Hound. I just thought that was a fun little tidbit. So Tim knew that Danny was the guy he wanted, and so he went to him, like I said, with the story. There was not a script at the time and the drawings, um, and Danny immediately jumped on board. And um, I know that you've covered a song by Oingo Boingo in the past, and Danny was really feeling like, you know, I've, I've kind of done my time with Oingo Boingo, and I want to move away from that. And so he actually has stated, like, Jack helped him do that. Um, Jack that uh, Danny said that Jack actually changed his life because he helped him realize like that he he didn't want to be in that band anymore and you know that time that chapter had closed and um, kind of helped him to understand himself also because just like Jack he he wanted something different mm. um, and Elfman stated that Halloween was always his favorite growing up so he had this natural attraction to playing Jack so when he was asked to do the voice of Jack he was literally like over the moon um, and even offered to do it without being paid <laughs> <laughs> um, like I said this movie did push the envelope Jack himself had over 400 different heads so all of the different figures that we see all the different expressions everything that we see in the movie is literally them replacing the head and the expressions and moving him inch by inch 
um, to get that entire story. Every single character had several hundred different parts um, and they had little different robots inside them to help them be able to move, to be able to create the fluidity that we see in the movie. Um, this movie was filmed on over 24 stages and it had different sets that were used to show um, different animations. For instance, like the spiral hilltop scene that was completely animated. And so they had to figure out how to do this for the first time. And that's one of the reasons why it did win such awards for its um, stage direction, for the sets and for the props and for the character design as well. And just another fun fact, I know I'm going out of order. There was over 227 puppets total for this entire film. That is incredible. You know, when you look back at a movie like this and like to think that it was made in the 90s when, you know, movies and technology were, were still kind of trying to find a good mix, the quality of these puppets and the stop motion and the cinematography in general is amazing like amazing like they must have had such patience yes I can't I mean it took them over three years to complete the filming the filming alone that's not even like the editing and everything and that was from sun up to sundown because so like every 24 seconds makes one second in the movie oh my gosh isn't that crazy? That sounds so exhausting. I know. So like they're literally working like it took a week to film like one scene in the movie. And that scene could be like five minutes long. I I'm so grateful for them. Um, And like I said, so Tim didn't have the script or the screenplay written. He didn't have the music. He just kind of had an idea. Luckily, he had amazing people like Henry and Danny Elfman. And luckily, Danny Elfman was dating Carolyn Thompson, who actually wrote the screenplay. She wrote it in a week. There was only one draft and there was only one revision, which like never happens in screenplay writing ever. Um, and after Tim read it, he loved it. And he said, all right, let's go. Henry loved it. And so they set off to find all these stages and build everything from scratch. And something else that's amazing is that because this was such a new type of filming for Disney, there was not a lot of people who did this kind of work. So there was like six people who were working and building all of these characters, who were making all of the costumes for all of these characters, who were making all of the heads and all of the arms and all of these different body parts that have to be taken off and moved for every single scene, six people. So it's mind blowing to to say like to say that it it just it baffles me. That just makes this movie like on such a higher pedestal to me because these people literally gave their blood, sweat, tear. I mean, can you imagine, Misa? How I I can't even like put myself in their shoes. Like if something went wrong and then we had to go and refilm the entire scene over again. Like can you imagine? I would cry. <laughs> No, dude, that's why you Stanley Kubrick that shit and you make them do it 58 times and then you move on. Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, to think that six people made this movie happen, that this movie that is still very, like, actively, like, adored and that is still popular, you know, that people still fawn over, that's, that's incredible to be a part of a legacy like that. 
Yes, I love it. Yes, exactly. And with that, I wanted to say one quote from Danny that just totally embodies what this entire movie is about. Um, Danny said, everyone feels like they don't belong at some point in their life. This film gave a voice to people who felt like they didn't have a voice. And that is exactly why I think I love this movie so much. I feel like at all, at, we all go through certain points in our life where we're just not 100% sure of what we're doing, whether it be, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? Um, you know, very simple decisions that aren't as big as, you know, career choices. I know that I've changed my career. I know Nisa has changed her plans from what we decided we were going to do when we were 13, right? And I feel like Jack, that's what makes Jack so relatable because he is going through that himself. And so when we first start our movie, we are greeted by this amazing forest that shows different trees with different seasons. And we start down this amazing spinning into Halloween Town. And we are introduced to the opening song, This is Halloween. And I'm only really going to say this one time just because every single song, all of the lyrics were 100% done by Danny Elfman. I will kind of say like the voice. I do kind of want to go over all of the musicians and um, performers for every single track. So he didn't work with a specific orchestra, but he, so he, uh, he found the people he liked and he pulled those in. Steve Bartek, Mark McKenzie, Chris Boardman, J.A.C. Redford, Mark Mann. Oh my gosh, Misa, there are so many people here. I, I'm just going to very quickly say them because they're on every single track, okay? Bob Batami, Richard Kraft, Bill Jackson, Bobby Fernandez, Sean Murphy, Sharon Rice, Billy Eastone, Mike Piriasante. I'm so sorry, Mike, I said your name wrong. Andy Bass, Dave Collins, Lolita Rogers, Bobby Page, Patty Zimnitsky, Mark Mann, Joel Franklin, Megan Cavallari, and Gary Adler. Those people are on every single track, and I just want to get that out of the way. Is that okay? Cool. Perfect. Every single song was composed by Danny Elfman. This is his 15th soundtrack album that he did compose. This was not his first rodeo, and I have to say that I, I think that this was probably one of his best soundtracks that he's done and it was nominated and a winner for the best original score and one of the most notable songs is this is halloween and that is the song that we are introduced to we see christmas easter st patrick's day um as we enter into the jack-o-lantern we see ghosts pumpkins and then we're introduced to kind of those typical nightmares and ghouls that we just you know think of when you think of halloween but then we start to see that these are actually people we see a mayor we see witches um, as they're kind of singing their song, they're telling us all about the Halloween town and that they're not mean, that this is just their job. The way Danny did this is that he has the different kind of monsters introducing themselves, like I'm the one hiding under your bed, I'm the one under your stairs. They're ghouls, but they're they're lovable ghouls, if you will. Right? Would you agree? They, they're not like creepy, creepy. 
Yeah, like even in the song, isn't there a lyric where they're like, we don't actually scare you or something? Like, I can't remember what the lyric was, but I, I saw it in a yes. review. <laughs> yes, um, we're not mean. It's uh, in this town of Halloween. That's it. Um, yeah. So they're, they're literally just saying like, this is our job. They are very, you know, personable. They're real people. They have feelings. And this is just kind of what they do. Um, I do want to say there is a line in there that says tender lumplings. And apparently that's a homage to um, an uh, Oingo Boingo song. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I have to say that for Misa. Oh, um, that is adorable. I <laughs> Shouts out to himself. I know, right? <laughs> oh, I love that. I love because it kind of made me sad when you said that he wanted to get away from it, which I mean, I guess obviously is obvious because he did leave the band. Um, yeah. But at least like he's got like a lighthearted like view on it. Like he he doesn't resent it. He doesn't want to never talk about it. Like that's cool that he would throw in a reference for them because it's not you know just him. It's them too. Exactly, exactly. That was you know a, a chapter of his life. So I thought that was a, a really cute homage and then of course that that homage lived on forever because like you said this movie is timeless so yeah so then we get to see jack skellington he rides around the town on fire and then he pulls up out of this kind of green oozing fountain um and everyone is standing around him, fawning over him, thanking him for another great Halloween and literally just holding him on a pedestal. And you can tell that he is very, very loved by the city, but he starts to sound a little agitated. He's like, oh, you know, thanks. Like, it's a little too much for him. This song is obviously one of my favorites because it's just the first one that introduces us to everything that's going on. Um, it sets the setting. It kind of introduces us to the problem because we can see how visibly agitated, you know, perturbed Jack is. And it introduces the town's lifestyle. Um, this song is super catchy. And Danny said that he wanted something that sounded um, not spooky, but still kind of like gave you chills at certain parts. And I think he did a great job of that. Um, he used xylophones and keyboards. There are some strings and things like that in here that help kind of make the song move up and down. And he also made sure that he embodied that when he did um, Jack's voice as well. This song has been covered in a 2006 special edition release of the film soundtrack by none other than Marilyn Manson. And then it was recovered by Panic at the Disco which I thought was so cool because those are such different, you know, bands. And for them to cover this and just put their own twist on it, um, I think it again shows just how broad the audience is for this movie, for it to be covered by such polar opposites. There's someone else named um, Sadie covered it, but I don't, I don't really know who that is, on the uh, V-Rock Disney album. So um, there's that cover too. <laughs> Okay, I'll see if I can find it. I do love the Marilyn Manson cover. I'm not going to lie. I do too. <laughs> I love it. So we almost immediately go into the next song, um, which is Jack's Lament. And this is after we see that, you know, Jack's really obviously uncomfortable with everyone praising him. We see that the town starts to give out awards for the spookiest ghost and the best vampire, trying to show how much they celebrate Halloween because it's literally their lives. 
and we see Jack kind of walk away. And this song is a huge contrast to the introduction to This is Halloween. This song is written in minor, and it's a very sad tune. Jack begins to sing, and you can hear just how heart-wrenching he feels his life is. He doesn't feel like he fits in. He doesn't know what he's doing with his life anymore. There are few who deny it. What I do, I am the best. For my talents are renowned far and wide. When it comes he's tired of celebrating the same thing and he wants new experiences for his life. And Danny did a great job of embodying that in the minor tones and just the keys and instruments that he used. Um, this song talks about Jack and how long he's been in Halloween Town and how he is the absolute best and he's known around the world and how people are terrified of him, but he's tired of it. And one of the lines that I love the best, it's year after year, it's the same routine. And I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old thing. And I think this song just really speaks to me because it's true. We kind of get into this rut of, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. You know, we wake up, we go to work, we come home, we cook dinner, we do whatever, we go to bed. And I know it's not exactly the same thing as running Halloween Town, but it gets old, right? And I think that's where I really like relate to Jack. Sometimes we need something new. We need a, a podcast with our best friend to make things yeah. a little bit different. You know what I mean? <laughs> Was that a cheap plug? <laughs> Never. <laughs> so I just, this song, I, and Danny did say that this song was actually the easiest for him to write because of what he was going through with his personal experience with Blingo Blingo. He had done that chapter and now it was time to move on. Um, and so this was one of his, he said he actually wrote the song first because he just felt so close to what Jack was going through that this song came out in no time at all. Um, and I do want to say that my youngest child, this is his favorite song in the entire movie. And he likes the part where Jack says, and since I am dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespeare in quotations and he likes to pretend to take his head off and I think it's adorable <laughs> so yeah um so this song again uh, very different so we do see um just how talented Danny is and how he can go from those very upbeats and very major chords and you know um those highs and those lows that he went from this is Halloween to those very lows kind of depressed almost like you can hear how depressed this song is because Jack just he feels stuck and I think that that really shows just how diverse Danny is this song was covered on the album Nightmare Revisited by the All-American Rejects which I'm not gonna lie it's not my favorite cover um I, I know you're gonna put it on the blog don't hate me if it is I'm sorry we all have our opinions is it what why why don't you like it um I know we've said this before, um, as much as I love covers of songs, I just feel like in my heart, there is no other person who can sing Jack like Danny. 
And so as much as I can appreciate the covers, um, I just feel like, and forgive me, I don't remember the name of the lead singer of All American Rejects off the top of my head. Um, Tyson Ritter? Yes, thank you. I knew it, I was like chicken, chicken, chicken. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like chicken tonight. <laughs> yes, sorry. Chicken necks. <laughs> um he his voice is too um it's too happy for me for this song if i think of the way all american rejects sound i immediately think of like swing swing or my paper heart or uh the last song yes (laughs) all great songs we love them in eighth grade but i that sound crossing with a song about Jack's lament and how he's kind of having this identity crisis and it's a really somber tone. I don't see that meshing well. I don't see them being the band that translates that song very well. Yes. So for me, it just, it was a, it was a poor choice. I'm as much as I love American Rejects because I love Swing Swing. I love Paper Heart. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I mean, I, I love all American rejects. They just it the voices just don't mesh for me. And I know it's a cover and I know it's supposed to be different, but for me it just it, it's not my favorite cover. Gotcha. Well, I'll put it on the blog and I am interested in hearing it. <laughs> awesome. So I do want to say that um, after Danny wrote the song and they were still trying to figure out who they were going to have sing for Jack, this is when Danny went to Tim and to Henry and was basically like, look, I'm going to almost volunteer for this because it would break my heart if someone else sang these songs as Jack, because he had literally put his heart and soul into writing the song. And this is when he realized how closely he related to Jack Skellington. Um, So he said that uh, the thought of someone else stepping into Jack literally would have killed him at this point. I love how Danny's not afraid to get really personal about his work. You can tell that when he's in charge of composing something, it's not just a job. No, it's his life. And he, he actually said that, like, Jack was his life. for Because even though he, he was actually done writing his stuff, he wrote the entire soundtrack um, and score, composed everything in less than 30 days. Mind-blowing. Like, how are you that talented, sir? he stuck around because he wanted to see how everything, you know, went together. And this was his life for three entire years. Every single day he went and visited and worked on all these sets and Jack was his life. I think that that really shows too, through all of the work that he did. Just love him. Love me some Danny. So after Jack seeing his heart out over his true sadness and, you know, how he can't really tell anyone how he truly feels, Sally has seen him and Sally her heart is broken because she feels like um, Jack should be able to tell her how he's feeling but they're in kind of like this weird like he doesn't realize he likes her type relationship plus she's got this weird father creator person who's constantly keeping her locked up in the tower so Jack decides to go for a walk with his adorable dog Zero and he ends up walking really really far into the surrounding forest into areas where he hasn't gone before. Zero wants a bone thrown. We see him barking at Jack. And so Jack obliges and takes off his rib, throws it to him. 
and they walk into the area that we saw at the beginning where it's the forest of all the trees with the different holiday doors. At the same time, the mayor, you know, is already trying to get ready for the next Halloween because that's what their lives are about. And um, we can see that he's freaking out. No one knows where Jack is. They literally start doing a town search for him. They just don't know what to do without Jack because Jack is their god, basically. And he, at the same time, Jack is completely enthralled by the Christmas tree door. It's so shiny and green. And we see his face light up when he sees all the ornaments hanging. And he opens the door and falls into the Christmas tree. And he stands up and he's covered in snow. And we get this jingling of bells introduction to what's this? What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. So he is exploring Christmas Town, and he's looking at all the differences between Halloween Town. He says that there's um, literally like white things in the air. He thinks he's dreaming. Wake up, Jack! This isn't fair. Um, he's he's literally questioning because it's it's such a a difference between Halloween Town, where it's very dark and the main colors are like black and orange and purple, while Christmas is green and gold and red and so shiny. And so Jack has never been in an atmosphere like this. And this song is, it's such a childlike song, like just written out of pure curiosity. Uh, and Danny did a great job of really showing what Christmas would sound like in this song. He used bells, he used uh, glockenspiel. It's like a wooden um, xylophone. You used to get the very like high little dinging notes. Um, to show like the little happiness between like the elves and Santa and all the people who are in Christmas town. Um, and so Jack is going around looking at just all the differences. Um, he sees people kissing and I guess they don't do that in Halloween town because he says like this looks so unique. He's literally poking his head into like windows with pies and looking at the children. He's under the beds. He's like, oh my God, there's no goal, no ghouls here, no ghosts. Where are the witches to scare them? He just, he's, completely baffled and uh, is trying to understand how this Christmas town works or what it is. Uh, and I just, I absolutely love this because we see like a complete difference from how Jack was in his last song where he's, you know, kind of feeling sorry for himself in this little pity party. And then he goes into this completely like a kid in a candy store, if you will. Right, because this is like, isn't this the first time in the movie where we actually kind of see Jack like really excited about something, like lively? Yes, absolutely. He's completely lively. Uh, it's almost like, like when you get your second wind, if you will, kind of like that would be my correlation. Like he's been doing the same thing, and then finally, like it's like he is alive again, like awakened for the second time. Mm -hmm. And we really see that, like I said, in the song and in the way that Danny wrote it. Um, and just it's it's so excited and it's it's such a fast tempo. It, it makes you excited. Like there's literally like uh, the way this is written, it's written like in seventh, eighth measure um, or timestamp. So it's a very fast paced song and it 
embodies just how excited Jack is when he's singing the song and, you know, exploring everything that's in Christmas Town, especially just from all the differences from Halloween. So it's it's a fun song. It's a great scene. Um, and I love how you said that, that Jack is so lively, which I think is just funny. So we see the town. Um, literally, the mayor is like falling over dead in his chair because he doesn't know what to do without Jack. And we hear Zero barking, and him and Jack have come back from Christmas Town. And he is so excited to tell everyone in Halloween Town about it. He calls all the residents together and he starts to tell them all about Christmas. And he gives them all a task because he wants to kind of bring Christmas to Halloween Town. Sally, his love interest, isn't quite sold on the idea, but she loves Jack, so she decides to go ahead and go along with his plans. Um, however, I think she has, like, there's some theories that I'll get into at the end, um, but she gets some signs that, like, this is not what they should be doing, and so she, she's quite adamant, while everyone else is just, like, blindly following whatever Jack says, you know? Um, so then ultimately Jack decides after kind of obsessing over Christmas because he decides he wants to do it bigger than Santa, they decide to completely take over Christmas and kidnap Santa Claus. And he has Lock, Shock, and Barrel, the trio of mischievous children, go and abduct Santa and bring him back to Halloween Town, which leads us into our next song, Kidnap the Sandy Claus. This is a song by Lock, Shock, and Barrel. When they are capturing Santa, they go into Christmas and they are um, trying to figure out how they're going to kidnap Sandy Claus, as they call him. Um, and Jack, before they leave, is adamant about not getting uh, Oogie Boogie involved. And we see that Lock, Shock, and Barrel kind of like hide their fingers behind their backs and decide to go ahead and try to figure out how they can get the gambling addict boogeyman, Oogie Boogie, to help them kidnap the Sandy Claus. Um, I love this song because it is really written like three little kids singing. Three awful little kids, by the way. Uh, Lock, Shock, and Barrel are like awful. Um, they are trying to work together to figure out how they're going to kidnap him. And they come up with like awful you know, ideas like put him in a nasty trap and snap it closed. Um, they call him a big red lobster man because they don't understand, like, it's not sandy claws, like a lobster. Um, they are going to put him in a boiling pot and literally treat him like a lobster. Uh, then they finally decide that they're going to go ahead and kidnap him and take him to Oogie Boogie because they want to please him as their little henchmen, and then the boogeyman will reward them with his uh, snake and spider soup, which I guess is a delicacy in Halloween Town. I'm not sure. I haven't been. So, well, when you go, will you let us know? Absolutely. Next podcast. Promise. Okay. Updates, please. Updates. <laughs> All the pictures. <laughs> so, yeah, they decide to go ahead and do that. I mean, they really do get kind of they're going to beat him with a stick, chop him into bits, lock him in a cage, and throw away the key, which I think is kind of uh, 
a little morbid for Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. Santa didn't do anything wrong. Doesn't Jack want him unharmed? Like what? Yes. <laughs> Jack Jack wants him unharmed. Um, but they they decided to take matters into their own hands. And I mean, if that doesn't show you what kind of kids Lock, Shock, and Barrel are, um, then I don't I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so are they the villains of this movie? I guess technically they're the henchmen because Oogie Boogie is the villain. Okay. Okay. So so yeah, they're the henchmen. And um they decide that like I said, they're gonna go ahead and get Oogie Boogie involved, which is against Jack's wishes. Um and it seems like there's there's kind of a scene right there that where it shows you like Jack is kind of more powerful than Oogie Boogie, which most people don't think because I I remember growing up being like kind of scared of the boogeyman because of, you know, horror movies. And the three kids, Lock, Shock, and Barrel, they work for Oogie Boogie, aka Boogeyman, but they know that Jack is powerful, so they don't really want to go against him either. There are a couple covers of uh, Kidnap the Sandy Claws, and my favorite is by Corn. Corn covering this song is just like, for me because I love corn and this is one of my favorite songs in the movie so it's just like awesome um and it fits okay it fits the movie the voice fits it works no hate all American rejects I just I don't (laughs) corn is more fitting for a soundtrack like this yes and they take the song and make it like even darker So it's perfect. I can't wait for it to be on the blog. Um, and then it was covered again by She Wants Revenge on the um, 2006 rendition of Halloween Unvisited. Uh, there are a couple of other instrumentals, which I thought was really fun too, by the Vitamin String Quartet, the Piano Tribute Players, and some band called Twinkle Twinkle Little Rockstar. Twinkle Twinkle Little Rockstar? Yeah. That's, isn't that the other the lullaby the rival to rockabye baby that i was talking about yeah so they covered it which i'm kind of jealous that rockabye baby didn't do it because i do like rockabye baby hang on does that mean that they did i'm looking it up right now Twinkle. did they do the whole album they might have i can't see why they wouldn't they would have just done one let me see what album it was on yeah they did the whole nightmare before christmas that is badass. I'm linking you right now. I love it. They sure did. Twinkle Twinkle Little Rockstar. This is Halloween. Jack's romantic. Looks like most of them are here. That is so awesome. Because cool. I know um, I know Pentatonics actually did like a medley of some of the songs. And they did do a piece of Kidnap the Sandy Claus. But it's not considered a cover because it's a medley. Gotcha. So, um, and I mean, you can throw that one up there too if you if you want. After we get our kidnapping the Santa Claus, Jack realizes that he's not going to be able to do Christmas the way that Christmas is done in Christmas Town, and they are going to have to Halloween this Christmas. So we immediately go into making Christmas, which shows all of our Halloween Town getting ready for their version of Christmas. Um, we see them smashing toys, cutting off heads of dolls. 
they're painting ducks with like blood and giving them bangs, you know, things that are very normal in Halloween town, not necessarily what you think of, you know, in the bright and white light Christmas town. Um, now, Jack does try to hold on to some of like the traditional Christmas conceptions that he has from when he visited, but at the end of it, he realizes like this is kind of who they are and we're just going to go with it. Um, we see Santa and his elves making the traditional toys as they kind of go back and forth between regular Christmas and um, the Halloween town Christmas. And <clears throat> we see the town coming together to make Christmas happen for Jack. Uh, we see Dr. Finkelstein making skeleton reindeer. Um, at the same time, this is when Santa is kind of checking his list. And this is when Lock, Shock, and Barrel actually do succeed in kidnapping him. And the Oogie Boogie boys take him to Oogie Boogie. They like throw him into this, I guess it's kind of a cage uh, where they keep Oogie Boogie. And so they throw Santa Sandy Claus in there also. So anyways, this has the whole town singing the song, like I said. And um, this is when we notice though, that Sally's still not really on board with Christmas. Um, we see her kind of realizing like she's going to have to do something because she has this premonition of a Christmas tree set on fire. And so she decides she has to take matters into her own hands because there's just no talking Jack out. And now the entire town is on board for Christmas. So she decides to go ahead and create this heavy fog and she tries to ruin uh Jack being able to fly with the skeletons that Dr. Finkelstein has created for him. Zero is able to help get the casket that they've turned into a sleigh up in the sky with all the presents and Sally goes into her song, Sally's song. Sally's song uh, was sang by Catherine O'Hara, of course, and this is the song that she sings right after Jack leaves to go do Christmas when her fog has failed. She sings about how she hopes that Jack is safe, but she feels that Jack will never really accept her feelings for him. This is another very sad song, and Danny did say that he wrote the song from, um, he reached into like previous relationships to write the song to embody that sadness of like the unknown of whether a relationship is going to work out or if you have feelings for someone who you don't know if they reciprocate those feelings, which I think is again, a very commonality for a lot of us. I can, I think a lot of us have felt that at some point in our lives. He really embodied that in this song. Um, and some of the, the lyrics are so sad in this song about, will he see how much he means to me? I think it's not meant to be it's just a very very kind of sad depressed like realizing like it's almost like she's kind of throwing in the towel if you will like she's realizing that this is that her love is not going anywhere for him it makes me sad but I love this song and this part because again Danny's really good about putting in those kind of like highs those high songs those happy songs again those major chords and then he kind of comes down and it's kind of like an emotional roller coaster with his soundtrack right? Like it's not just the same high state the whole time. This song ends with Sally 
feeling down. She tried her best to save Jack. She knows what's potentially going to happen. And she decides to just be like his, his friend there for him when things happen, whether she's the one for him or not. Um, this song was covered by Fiona Apple on the Nightmare Before Christmas special edition soundtrack. And it was also covered by Amy Lee on the Nightmare Revisited. And this song was actually covered but redone for a Phineas and Ferb episode, the Phineas and Ferb Summer Belongs to You, as one of the characters, Isabella, tries to share her feelings for Phineas, which makes me love that cartoon so much because I love that they paid homage to The Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm interested to hear this Fiona Apple rendition. It's actually pretty cool because her voice has that natural lowness. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it fits. Like it's, it's again, it's that sadness, like that internal sadness. Like you can feel her sorrow in the song and it just, it makes, it almost makes me want to cry when I hear it because you can, I mean, it makes me feel like Fiona's been through shit. Fiona Apple is amazing. (laughs) She really is. I think she's under, she's so underrated. Yeah. But at the same time, I kind of like her that way because I don't even think she would want a lot of attention. Yeah, you know what? You're you're right. Like I I don't want her to be mainstream. Like I like that she's what minor stream. What would you call that? <laughs> um, borderline indie, but not really. Like I mean, she's won awards and stuff, but she's still very low key. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Borderline indie. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> she's one of those. To me, she's one of those artists who like she can pop up whenever she wants. She can release something whenever she feels like it, and it's going to be amazing. Like, oh, the only other artists I could think of right now who can do that are, like, Childish Gambino and Radiohead. Ooh, you're right. <laughs> like, they can take off as much time as they want, but when they show up, it's amazing, and then they disappear for five years, and it's okay. Yeah, no and one people can will wait, <laughs> And people will wait for them. Anxiously waiting. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anxiously. I agree with you. I I. I... Yes, I, I'm anxious for you to hear the rendition and then hear your thoughts on it. Cool. Yes, it'll be on the blog. Yay. Okay, so then after Sally ends her beautifully sad song with some of my favorite lyrics, I'm going to go ahead and read them for you. Try as I may, it doesn't last. And will we ever end up together? No, I think not. It's never to become, for I am not the one. Ugh, heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. So we see her just tormented. At the same time, Jack is in Christmas Town dropping off presents, all of these tormented toys. And, you know, the regular kids are out and just feeling terrorized basically by Santa. We hear voices calling into the cops to report the impersonator of Santa. Um, and then we hear, like, on the news, like, barricade your doors, don't open them, block your fireplaces. And we start to see some of the toys like come alive and chase the kids and torment kids and like lock them into rooms. It ultimately ends to Jack getting shot down. Um, At first he thinks that people are applauding him and giving him fireworks. And then he realizes that people are shooting at him and he feels like he had this chance to go and do something new and now it was all for naught. Um, he lands in Halloween town on a statue and Sally tries to 
go and rescue Santa from Boogie because she wants to save Christmas so that it's not ruined for Christmas Town. Um, and this is when Jack realizes, I am who I am. And there's no mistaking that. I'm Jack the Pumpkin King. He ends up helping save uh, Santa from Oogie Boogie. He destroys Oogie Boogie. And all of the town is very excited to see Jack in full swing as Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King of Halloween Town. And we end our movie with the finale, the final song um, that is sung by the entire chorus. And this song ends our movie. Like I said, um, we see Jack rightfully returning to Halloween Town. Um, it's kind of just a rendition of This is Halloween, um, but it shows that Jack's back. We do see a little shout out from Santa, who's now returned to Christmas Town to save Christmas as he brings snow to all of the people of Halloween Town. So it shows just a cute little a combination of the towns. And it ends the movie on a traditional. And they lived happily ever after Disney ending. And Jack and Sally kiss, and that's it. Aww. So it's that amazing little love story all in Tim Burton fashion. So, uh, and I know I covered a lot already, but there are a couple fun facts that I wanted to cover if that's okay. So you guys know I love a good conspiracy theory. And... There are tons of theories about how all these characters died because Halloween Town is filled with dead people. And so they talk about how um, Sally is accused of being a witch. And that's why she's able to um, kind of tear herself apart and sew herself back together. That she was literally pulled apart um, for being a witch. Um, that lock shock and barrel are all um their characters their masks that they wear show how they died so uh for example lock was said to have frozen to death because his skin is white his lips are blue um then there's the choice of a devil costume signifying the desire for heat um zero the pup of the puppy of jack is said to have been electrocuted as he resembles wisps of smoke um, Jack himself is considered to have been burned alive because he rides in on fire. Uh, and there's just, it's so much, so many, so many theories about how all these characters came to be. And of course, Tim has answered none of these theories. So they continue to grow and grow in size. Um, there is one theory that Oogie Boogie actually used to be the mayor. But Jack took over because Oogie Boogie wanted to leave the town to even darker, um, kind of creepier, more scary vibes than what the town really wanted. Um, and one of my favorite theories is that the citizens of Halloween Town actually represent different types of fears. Um, and so some of the fears that represented were um, Dr. Finkelstein was the fear of aging. Sally was the fear of having disabilities. The mayor was social anxiety. And Jack was fear of dying. Um, which I just thought these were really cool theories. 
That's interesting. I've never heard any of these. Neither had I. And so people are like, people get really into the theories behind things. And like I said, Tim has never gone on record to say anything about whether these people were right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure he he prefers that way. Of course. He's like, let him talk about it. Uh, so I, I just some fun facts in there and I know I covered a lot of other fun facts, um, about the filming process and everything. Um, but I do want to say that Jack is actually in quite a few other movies. He made an appearance in Beetlejuice. He also made appearances in, um, Frankenweenie, James and the Giant Peach and, um, in Coraline as well because of Henry, um, filming, I'm sorry, being the director of those. And of course the others are Tim Burton's films. Disney fought Tim and Henry on having eyes for Jack. If you notice, Jack just has black circles because he is a skeleton. Um, They almost stopped the entire film because they refused to give him eyes. And they showed a picture, I'm going to have to send it to you so you can put it on the blog, of just how different Jack would look with the eyes that Disney wanted him to have. And it took them showing all of the 400 different heads that Jack had to show that you could have expressions and emotions without having eyeballs. Uh, Vincent Price was supposed to play Santa Claus, but he got sick. There was supposed to be a sequel, but Henry and Tim refused because they just wanted, you know, it, it stands up by itself. And yeah, I mean, there's so many fun facts on everything in this movie. I know I've talked a lot about it. Uh, You can tell how much I love this movie. Um, But I know all this amazingness will also be on the blog. And so I'm going to end it with, I hope you enjoyed my cover of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yay! Awesome. You did awesome. I know I talked a lot. I'm so sorry. No, totally understandable. (laughs) Again, it's that just goes to show how much you like it. I do have a few questions. Yeah, ask away. I'm not as familiar with this movie as you are. Okay. Oh, okay, so there's a couple lyrics that kind of confuse me. So Jack says that he's dead and he can remove his head to recite Shakespearean lines. Yes. But then later on, he's been missing for a few days because he's hanging out in his house trying to figure out Christmas. And the little boy says, hope he hasn't died. Yes. <laughs> so he's already... So in this town, everyone is technically dead. Just right. Because- How do you die in Halloween Town? So there are theories on this also. The way that you die in Halloween Town is actually like you have to be set on fire or split apart, like pulled apart. Um, like it, it's almost like a torturous death because this involves your soul leaving. Okay. Okay. No, again, these are just theories I've seen on Reddit um, because I, I went deep into the rabbit hole of this. Um, so these are just theories, but what I was reading is that, um, again, everyone is dead, but the way that you would actually, because like Oogie Boogie dies, and the way that he dies is that his entire body is ripped apart and all his bugs okay. go away. And so then where does he go when he dies? You know, I don't know. That wasn't in the theory. I'm assuming hell, but I, I don't know. One thing I thought was always, was really dark. I mean, of course, this movie has dark imagery, but the thing I thought was darkest is that they straight up start shooting at Jack with guns. 
Oh, yeah. Like, they even have cannons. That's insane to me. Like, that's where I would think. If I was with Disney and I refused the movie at first, I think that would be the scene that I was most troubled by. Because I'm like, holy shit. Their first response, which I guess isn't surprising, is to just start shooting. Yeah, right? Yeah. They don't even talk. There's no no negotiation. They start shooting. Yeah. Um, No, I completely... Now, I want to say that I don't think that every character would go to hell, but Oogie Boogie is, like, notorious for being a bad guy. Okay, right. He's the villain. Yes. So that's why I would say, like, if he he's dead, he's going to hell. Or or maybe, like, in limbo. Like, you know? Right. There's no, there's no place for them to go. So I do have a question about the overall message of the movie. Go ahead. Because he's he's unhappy being the king of... Halloween town so he tries something new and then he decides I'm just gonna be the king of Halloween town like he's is he is he embracing it is he just accepting it I I guess I just never really now that you're explaining the message of the movie like I get it but when I watched it I I got different impressions does that make sense yeah of course um and I think that's that's great. I'd love to hear your impressions too. Um, so the way that um, Danny and Tim and Henry described it is that he is embodying it, but he's realizing that he can't be a fake Santa Claus. There's already somebody for that role. And he is just trying to fill in shoes with his own ideas and beliefs. And that's not a, that's not a true representation of what Christmas is like he can't do Christmas the way that Santa can and so why should he be okay being you know playing second fiddle if you will um Mm -hmm. and so he is embracing that he he is Halloween like no one can do Halloween the way he can and he's choosing to embrace that and realize that you know what it doesn't have to be the same always I can we can change the way we do Halloween within Halloween like we can do Halloween like Halloween gifts not necessarily that's what he's thinking but like one year we can have a theme for what we're going to do for Halloween um that it just doesn't have to like you have to find the magic you have to make each day a little bit different for yourself instead of relying on I guess others to make it different for you does that make sense well yeah it's just to me I just it makes me feel like he just kind of went back to doing this thing that he knows didn't excite him anymore. That he's just kind of, kind of keep doing it because he can't do anything else very well. Like, again, I'm not knocking the movie. It is an amazing movie, of course. But I'm just, I guess the story. No, I completely agree with what you're saying because I do agree that if you watch it, like, you're like, okay, so like he tried something and then he gave up. You know, like, oh, because he wasn't successful at it. But I think it's, in doing something different, he realized how much he does love Halloween. Because remember, he did Christmas, but he Halloweened Christmas. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think he realized in doing so, I don't need another holiday. Like, I just need kind of like when you spice things up with your partner you've been with forever. You know what I mean? He's realizing, and I think that's what the important message is for like, yes, it's great to go out and try things. And no, you may not be successful at everything, but you may find in doing so where your true love is with what you're doing. Like, for instance, 
there was a period where I stopped baking because it wasn't fun anymore. Mm -hmm. But then I realized I don't have to bake just cakes and cookies. I can do macaroons and brownies and mini cakes and, you know, chocolate Oreo truffles. And just, just realizing that you, you've got to find the small moments to celebrate in the kind of mundane everyday things that you might have to do. Okay. I like the way you explain it better than the way the movie did. Because <laughs> you're right. Because the, the way that you put it, to me, like, in my eyes, it just, it did look like he just kind of gave up. Like, to me, where the movie ends seems more like it would be, like, the halfway point or, like, the, the three quarters of the way in. Like, he should try something else again and then be good at it. And then I see him happy. You know, no, I agree with your interpretation also. So I love that you pointed that out. Thank you. Uh, but aside from that, like amazing score soundtrack, of course, because everything Danny Elfman touches turns to gold. And um, yeah, it's really it's really cool that that to at least to him, like this was such a personal project and that that it's to this day, appreciated. It's like everyone has their own reason why they love this movie. So um, it's cool that he got to share his art that way, in that form. Agreed. Uh, uh, I love it. I'm so excited. Well, thank you for letting me share my my geek moment for <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas. Yay! <laughs> See, you didn't have to be nervous. You did so good. <laughs> oh, you're sweet. I know I geeked out. So I'm sorry. I know I talked a lot, but I hope I... I covered it with the respect and, you know, just the recognition that it deserves. I think fans of the movie would say, yes, you did. (laughs) Yay. Awesome. Okay. And now it is Misa's turn. Okay, cool. So it is my turn. And I just want to take a moment, guys, if I may. We we've, we started doing these recordings in separate days because of our schedules and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, so last night, I didn't get to give Frankie the praise that she deserves for doing such a good job on Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, shut your face. Because, guys, Frankie gets so, so, so nervous about when she has to cover scores and when she has to cover her favorite movies. And it just so happens that a lot of her favorite movies were scores. Yeah. So go figure. <laughs> so I just have to say that, like, even though she gives me a lot of like, you know, gold stars for <laughs> for my efforts, I think that she too also deserves all the shiny gold stars because she did awesome. Oh my god! I'm already emotional. <laughs> Today was the inauguration, and we were both kind of feeling hopeful today we hope you are too today was a good day and uh i'm just on cloud nine and i you just made my night Misa. so sweet i would have gone on and on about it last night but i know you wanted to go to bed i'm sorry <laughs> and, I I'm you, and i didn't want to keep you and i was like she's gonna fall asleep listening to me i need to let her go probably i would have used your voice <laughs> but i did totally fall asleep to the um oh my god i forgot the name of it not it's the fake rockabye baby the fake <laughs> The twinkle, twinkle, little rock star. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. The little rock star, my bad. I fell asleep to that last night, so that was fantastic. (laughs) Did you love it? You know, I really did. I'm not going to lie. It's probably going to be my, like, every night lullaby. uh, Because it just, it makes me happy. (laughs) 
Those songs translate really well into lullabies. They absolutely do. Danny Elfman, you freaking genius, you. Uh, too much love. All the love oh, for God, Danny yeah. Elfman. I realize, like, he, exactly, we're like his biggest fans. We've talked about him a lot. <laughs> Danny, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on sometime. Come on, Danny. <laughs> Hit us up. Instagram is Hey Soundtrack City. <laughs> And Hooters. So it is my turn and it's time to talk about my soundtrack now. And Frankie, you haven't guessed it. No, and I still don't know it. And I'm mad and not even Angel knew it. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. 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 Don't I'm hate me. Dying. Okay. 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 Go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when I uh, chose this movie, I really did not know what I was in the mood for next. And we've talked about this before. We tend to gravitate toward movies and soundtracks that are kind of matching our mood at the moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But uh, somewhere between the beginning of December and today, Inauguration Day, I didn't really know how to feel. You know, it's it's that moment where like right before and then right after Christmas where you're just kind of in limbo and there are no real days and you're not really, you're just kind of wandering aimlessly, not sure what to do until the next year. I'm so glad it's not just me. Thank you for making me feel normal. It's definitely not just you. It's like, the, it's like we enter this really weird twilight zony dimension where time doesn't mean anything and our productivity doesn't mean anything and we're just kind of waiting but no one knows what we're waiting for thank you okay (laughs) yes yes so totally can relate and so I I just kept looking at my dvd collection because I'm looking I'm looking at I'm like I really can't order any more dvds right now I'm running out of space I need to work (laughs) with what I have (laughs) and I picked up a movie off of my shelf that I absolutely love that has always just made me howl in laughter first time I saw it I laughed until it hurt I laughed until I cried this movie is just hilarious to me and I recommend it to everyone when I originally wanted to talk about this movie I kind of wanted to talk about it like I was also living in the movie universe that they are living in so I wanted to present this movie as though I am an actual fan of these people and I, you know, I just wanted to play along with it by saying like, oh, his name, which he now goes by this, and that's his actor name. But then I realized like there were a lot of different tweaks I was going to have to make to my notes in order to keep up that facade. Okay. And it was going to kind of complicate some of the some of the trivia and some of the fun facts because I want you to be able to discern like what is fiction from what is reality, if that makes sense. Of course. So... Regardless of, you know, me keeping the kayfabe, if you will, I am still a really big fan of this band because they do produce music. And I just want to commend this band because they have spent their careers bringing to light a very serious issue of humans spontaneously combusting. Today I'm talking about the 1982 rockumentary this is Spinal Tap. Oh my god! <laughs> I love it. Please don't be this. Yes, yes. 
Okay, awesome, awesome. So the oh clue God. is from when they were visiting Elvis's grave. Duh. Oh, my God. I feel like an <laughs> idiot. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I wanted to throw you off. I wanted to throw you off. You succeeded. <laughs> so, guys, for those of you who have not seen this movie, this is such a great comedy. It's a cult classic. And it was directed by Rob Reiner, who is also known for movies such as Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, and Misery, just to name a few. Great movies. Mm-hmm. He also stars in this rockumentary slash mockumentary as the documentary maker Marty DeBurgi. And his job throughout this whole movie is to follow a rock band called Spinal Tap. And so just to be clear, Spinal Tap isn't really a real band, but they actually kind of are mm-hmm. because the three actors, the, the three principal actors and members of the band also perform quite a bit as Spinal Tap in character. They do interviews in character. You know, they've done ads as their characters, not as themselves. Like, Spinal Tap is pretty much a real thing as well as being fictitious, but it is like stemmed from fictitious roots. <laughs> right. It's like fiction that became nonfiction. Exactly. Over time. <laughs> exactly. Kind of like when Toy Story came out, the Woody doll didn't exist and then the Woody doll existed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So think like that, guys. <laughs> so this is Final Tap is um, a hilarious rockumentary that premiered in the U.S. on March second, nineteen eighty four, which I thought was kind of funny because we just discussed Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. We sure did. <laughs> and before I go on, some of the sources that I used for my research include IMDb, This Is Final Tap audio commentary, YouTube completemusicupdate.com, deadline.com, guitarworld.com, and Wikipedia. Don't forget to make your donations to Wikipedia, guys. They just hit 20 years. Happy birthday to them. So, uh, before I go on, just want to go through the cast really fast. So, this cast is pretty much freaking loaded. Like, every freaking buddy is in this movie. Uh, There are some really notable actors who make very small appearances, like a line or two. There are some very well-known actors that are in it for a scene or two, and then they just kind of leave. But I think that everyone makes their mark in this film. Everyone is memorable in some way. So we have Michael McKean, who plays David St. Hubbins. Christopher Guest plays Nigel Tufnell. Harry Shearer plays Derek Smalls. Then we have Bruno Kirby, who plays Tommy, who is their driver. We have Fran Drescher, who plays Bobby Fleckman. We have Dana Carvey and Billy Crystal, who both play mimes during the party. Paul Schaefer, who plays Artie Fufkin. We have Angelica Houston, who plays Polly. And we have Fred Willard. Those are just a few people who are in this cast. Of course, again, this is loaded. So as as you go back and watch, you'll recognize people and you'll be like, hey, that's that guy from wherever. This documentary starts off with Marty. And he introduces himself. And he says that he saw a band in 1966 that redefined rock and roll. 
They had raw power. And most of all, he was impressed with their punctuality. And he's talking about Spinal Tap. And so he talks about how 17 years and 15 albums later, the band is still together. They're known as one of England's loudest bands. And in the fall of 1982, Smell the Glove was going to be released as their latest album, and they were taking a tour around the U.S. So he jumped on to the U.S. tour to make the rockumentary, just to capture the sights, the sounds, and the smells of the band on the road. So we go into this montage of different bands outside the concerts, and they're talking about what they love about Spinal Tap. And this is intercut with shots of the band showing up at the airport, and they're playing. And the first song that we get is actually Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. But I'm going to save that for last. So I'm just going to mention it for now. But they do start off the film playing this song live to a crazy crowd. And if you remember concerts, you know what it looks like. Oh, gosh. Break <laughs> my heart. Yes. And so we see Spinal Tap perform. And the captions pop up for each of the members. We have David St. Hubbins on lead guitar, Nigel Tufnell on lead guitar, Derek Smalls on bass, Mick Shrimpton on drums, and Viv Savage on keyboards. And so after the performance, we cut to them being interviewed by Marty. And the band started off with David and Nigel in 1964, and they went through a few different names before they finally settled on the Thamesmen. And then we cut to some really old footage of them playing my first song, Give Me Some Money. This is a retro-ass fucking performance. It's black and white. It's blurry. It looks a lot like the In, the in Bloom music video by Nirvana. I would agree. <laughs> so this is their performance on Pop, Look, and Listen, which was a British show from 1965. And featured on this song and in this performance that they're showing is their first drummer, whose name was John Stumpy Peeps, or otherwise known as The Peeper. And their bassist, instead of it being Derek, it's actually a man named Ronnie Pudding, and he actually co-wrote the song Give Me Some Money. And they admit he's no Derek Smalls, but he is quite the singer. So I do prefer Derek. I'm glad that Derek joined the band eventually. Unfortunately, the drummer who is featured in this performance John Stumpy Peeps, he actually passed away in a very bizarre gardening accident, and he was replaced by uh, their next drummer, who went by the name of Eric Stumpy Joe, and Eric Stumpy Joe also passed away. Uh, he choked on vomit, but it wasn't his own. Yeah, that's important to note. <laughs> So then we, after that uh, archive footage that we get, we go to their party and we meet Bobby Fleckman and we also meet their manager whose name is Ian Faith. And then we keep going on tour with them. We go on to the next city with them and they are in Philadelphia at Fidelity Hall and they are playing one of my honorable mentions, Big Bottom. And for this performance, Derek has the giant double bass, which Frankie, we've talked about before, is really fucking heavy. Yes. Yes. And like Derek is a short, a shorter guy. Yeah. I was going to say it's like not proportionate. And that's what makes this scene so hysteric to me. Yes. <laughs> it's 
so big. This double bass thing dwarfs Derek, which it, I admit is not hard, but <laughs> I also think it's probably heavier than him too. Yeah, I mean, well, yes, <laughs> they're ginormous. <laughs> Nigel has these really great checkered pants on, and I swear, the band is just dripping sex in this song. Uh, fun fact, they wrote this song in 20 minutes. Really? Uh-huh. All uh, fiction aside, for reals, uh, this is actually a parody of Fat Bottom Girls by Queen. Ooh, I knew it. Mm-hmm. Now that I knew. Mm-hmm. I did not know that they did it in 20 minutes, so that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also another note, all three frontmen play bass during this song. So if your speakers have a good low frequency, play the song and you will appreciate the title even more. Mm-hmm. Okay, will do. <laughs> Just a note. So um, then we go on to a few more interviews and Marty's talking about their album reviews and they're talking about this one where they released an album called Shark Sandwich and a review called it shit sandwich (laughs) and they're like that's not real you can't print that it's not real (laughs) while their tour is going on there's a little bit of controversy with their upcoming album cover because their album cover depicts quote a naked a greased naked woman on all fours with a dog collar and a leash and a man holding the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it yeah end quote um so it sounds pretty vulgar uh i I guess i guess degrading and bondage is the way they describe it too right 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 like and and so the record company is reluctant to release this album if that's what they want the cover to be because it's it's bobby fleckman's words just like it's 1982 so yeah this there shouldn't be a woman on an album cover in a leash So there are some objections to the album cover and their manager, Ian, finds out that they will not be releasing the album if that cover remains. So the band is pretty upset about that. Get a little further into the movie and we see them perform Hellhole, which is another one of my honorable mentions. And this this performance is really it's funny, even though it's not supposed to be funny, I guess, um, because Nigel leans so far back while playing guitar that he gets stuck and his back goes out. Yeah. <laughs> and while listening to the audio commentary, uh, by the way, which I want to note, the three band members do the audio commentary in character. Of course they do. So it's hilarious and so Derek on the commentary during this scene he says that's one bad thing about stagecraft when something bad happens to you people think it's part of the show (laughs) (laughs) and then and then then, and even Nigel he's like well yeah the the fact that I was semi-paralyzed was not a joke to me at the time (laughs) And then they all get upset. All three members get upset because when his back goes out, a roadie comes out on stage to help him up. And the band members are like, well, that's messed up. They should have sent out a doctor instead of some technician. Who is that guy? (laughs) It's just, 
Oh gosh, it's so funny. I'm oh already crying. I love that. I love that they do it in character. I, I, and I just want to say, like, I actually didn't realize that Spinal Tap wasn't a real band until I was like in middle school. Same. I hadn't seen the movie. I'd only heard about it, but the way I'd heard about it in bits and pieces, it sounded like it was a legit doc, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's hilarious. Yeah, so I that just makes me laugh that they're doing it in character. It's it's like it, you know, like we said, it's the fiction that became nonfiction, and now it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's dedication, man. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the hellhole performance, we get the iconic scene where Nigel is showing Marty his guitars and Nigel has a plethora, uh, just a whole room full of guitars on display. One of them still has a tag on it. You're not allowed to touch it. You're not allowed to breathe on it or look at it. This is when Nigel shows Marty his amp and he's like yeah most amps go to 10 but look at this one 11 11 11 11 <laughs> and Marty's like they they all go to 11 he's like these go to 11 and so <laughs> and so Nigel's like Nigel's like <laughs> I choked on my I'm sorry <laughs> no it's hilarious it really is. It's like one of the most memorable moments in movie history. <laughs> yes, and I'll get into it a little later. Just how iconic this film, this uh, this scene became. So, because Nigel Nigel's talking about like you know when you're playing and you want you want to get like one more louder, but you can't because you're you're already at ten. These go to eleven, so you can go one louder, one louder. <laughs> and then Marty's like, well, why don't you just rework it so that 10 is louder and then when you turn it up it goes all the way up to 10 and 10 is the loudest and Nigel like processes this <laughs> if you can watch that on his face as the words land in his head yes and then he just kind of points at the amp and says these go to 11 <laughs> Oh god damn it, it's so fucking funny. It's so fucking funny. Guys, I will post as many scenes as I can on the blog. Please. If I have to if I have to post the whole movie, they will be there. It's gonna please be there. Please go please go watch the film and check the blog because that scene will be there, I promise. Oh, that's hilarious. So funny. Okay, so then we get a little further in and David is on the phone with his girlfriend and she decides she's gonna come on tour with them. Which Nigel is not crazy about because Janine is very much one of those girlfriends who kind of like, she hogs her musician boyfriend when she's around. She wants his attention on her the whole time. And he, he even though he wants to pull away and be with his band and be with his friends, like she still kind of makes him spend time with her. So it's, it's one of those relationships. She's needy. She's a needy bitch. And yeah, she's also kind of weird. So then we see the band visiting Elvis, and we see more of the interview. Early on in their career, they were known as the Thamesmen, and then it wasn't until 1967 when Spinal Tap emerged. And then we cut to some archive footage of one of the very first performances by Spinal Tap, 
It is a song called Listen to the Flower People. Listen to what the flower people say. And this is a performance from when Spinal Tap was on Jamboree Pop. And I love this performance so much. This is one of my favorite songs by them. They all are in their like hippie flower child mode era. They all have great pants, awesome colors, great patterns. There's dancers in the music video. And yeah, it's just, there's just a very chill 70s vibe. Uh, just, just great. Just great. I, I really liked this era of Spinal Tap. And uh, in the video, you actually see Stumpy Joe on the drums. But as the Flower People era went on, uh, was when Peter James Bond replaced Stumpy because of his untimely death, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and so another funny little tidbit, uh, in the video for Listen to the Flower People, you see Derek, you see a close-up of Derek, and he mouths, I love you. And when he's on commentary, he points that out. He's like, I love you. I'm saying I love you. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we picked up on that. <laughs> and he's like, w and then um, Nigel says, uh, well, when we were in the recording studio, you said, I love you. <laughs> and Derek says, yeah, I wasn't reading very well then. <laughs> I cannot with I this man. <laughs> It's, and they let that go to print? Come on, Derek. <laughs> sloppy. That's sloppy. Peter James Bond, who, like I mentioned, went on to become their drummer during the Flower People phase, he actually, unfortunately, also died. He exploded on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The band uh, says that it was just a flash of green light and then nothing. Nothing was left. So really, really sad. It was spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. And but but Spinal Tap says that people spontaneously combust every day. They just go underreported. Yeah. It's it's a national like issue. It's a crisis, guys, and we need to bring awareness to it. We need to wear ribbons. For That's it. what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, by now, Janine, who is David's like girlfriend, she has joined the tour and, uh, they're actually doing sound check at Shankall in Milwaukee. And I'm going to go on a tiny, tiny tangent here, but I got to say, like, I kind of love watching Spinal Tap do sound check. Oh, does it take you back? Yeah, because it takes me back to all the time I spent with bands in my career. I know, Frankie, you know, and a few people who know me best, Alan's anniversary was this past weekend. Uh, he passed away five years ago now. Insane. And as I went back to listen to his music, it landed very heavily on my heart that the thrill of seeing Alan play live is long gone. That makes my heart so heavy. It's almost like you don't really realize that aspect of it. Like that you're never going to be in the same room with him. You're never going to get to hear him sound check. You're never going to get to tell him like, oh, no, you know, adjust this or just those little things that you forget. Um, and that's a hard reality when that does set in. Yeah. Yeah. And it. And furthermore, it just kind of. 
made me realize that I'm never going to be in that crowd with that combination of musicians and those combinations of sound. And it will never feel like that ever, ever again. And when I go back and listen to the songs that he wrote and the songs that he played, they're kind of like a time machine for me. They take me back to moments where things were good and I loved what I did. And all those good feelings and positive vibes come rushing back and it makes my heart race. And when I listen to his music, it feels like I'm there at the shows again. And he is there playing the shows again. And things are good. And there was a time when my friends were in a band and they were playing live music all over the city. And I made it a point to go and see them every chance I got. Every chance. I think I can count on one hand how many shows I missed within the past 12 years. Yeah, I think it's like less than two. <laughs> and no matter what was going on in my life, there was always a rock show to look forward to until there wasn't. And it hasn't been the same, like not just because of COVID, but um, since he did pass away, you know, because they did, they did have some more shows after that and it just wasn't. It just wasn't the same. Ah, uh, this is a whole nother subject for a whole nother day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take the, I know I took the mood down a bit and I, I don't want to get too detailed. Um, but I think the remaining members did what they could to evolve without him. Um, and also in honor of him. But there is a particular recipe for magic that Alan was a very imperative part of that will never be duplicated or replaced. And there will always be a sense of incompleteness. Well said. So yeah, soundcheck. Watching them soundcheck is cool. Janine shows up, and this is actually when the album, which has been pressed and is going to be released, the box with the albums has arrived. Ian walks up with the box, and they all reach in and grab the album, and it is completely black, front to back. No writing, no title, not even their names, just a black album cover <laughs> and it's like they're confused because and it was because it was because they couldn't reach a, an agreement on the image so they just mm -hmm. printed nothing and the manager Ian is trying to see the bright side and he's like well death sells black reminds you of death and I just think it's hilarious to listen to the the band members like they're looking at the album and Derek's like you can see yourself in both sides <laughs> <laughs> like and he's like it's like a black mirror <laughs> and then and then at Nigel is even like he's like I mean how much more black uh, if you ask how much more black this album could be the answer is none none more black <laughs> that sentence none more black that was always a so they're not happy David is pissed and it's just, it's, they're, they're just not happy, right? And so 
we cut to another one of my songs, which is Rock and Roll Creation. And this is actually probably my favorite performance in the entire film. This is the first time I saw this film. This performance cracked my shit up. Like, I was hurting. I was laughing so, so much. This is the pod performance where they come out of the pods. Yes. The performance starts off and David and Nigel and Derek are all in these like purple translucent eggs. Um, they kind of look alien-ish and they're, uh, yeah. you, you can tell that the band members are inside with their instruments. And so as the song picks up, David's opens and then Nigel's opens and the lights go up and the song starts, but Derek's egg doesn't open. <laughs> So he's just stuck in the egg and he has to hold his bass, which is super tall. He's like holding it upright just to play it. So he's still playing from the inside. <laughs> and it's just, it's, so the song continues because the show must go on. And a roadie pops out onto the stage and he's trying to like pry the egg open and he's trying to pull it and, and, Derek is like sticking his arm through the crack of the egg, trying to like pull it open from the inside. And then the roadie gets a hammer and he's, he's trying everything. He gets like a blowtorch. Nothing yes. is working <laughs> and nothing is working. And so you, you see like the performance is cutting back to David and Nigel and they're trying to like play it off. They're trying to discuss how to, go on and so they just continue playing but they're very obviously distracted because they need Derek and Derek is stuck <laughs> and so finally the song begins to end David and Nigel each go back to their eggs and as soon as they go back to their eggs there's shuts Derek's opens, opens. <laughs> and Derek jumps out to get on the mic and he realizes that the song is over so he tries to run back into the egg and it shuts on his arm. <laughs> he just kind of like looks out into the crowd like this panic moment. And then he just like raises his arm and they cheer. <laughs> it is so fucking funny, this performance. So fucking funny. And so according to the commentary by Derek and Nigel and David, this idea for the eggs in the performance was stolen from a gold is green festival in Europe. Derek says that he admits he thought he was going to suffocate and he actually stopped breathing so that he could conserve his oxygen. Well, good. How long did he hold his breath for? That's, that's impressive. It's impressive. It shows true dedication. True musician. If he was going to die, he was going to die doing what he loved, damn it. They're a little put off by the fact that it became a distraction. Um, but they do commend Derek for continuing to play. Derek admits that the edges of the shell, they actually really hurt when he tried to break them open because they were serrated. They weren't dulled down. And so he said that he was genuinely scared because he didn't think he was going to get out. <laughs> and then I also want to say, Derek says that it's important to note that this only happened once. 
The egg malfunction only happened once, but the band doesn't know why Marty chose to show that one gig and not one of the others where they worked perfectly. So they they make it they make it pretty obvious throughout commentary. They're not very happy with Marty. Yeah. Yeah, they they think he had an agenda. They really didn't like how he would ask them questions and they're pretty sure he already knew the answers. <laughs> pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, not happy. Um <laughs> But that I love that scene and that is one of my favorite performances to this day. I laugh just as hard as I did when I saw it the first time. <sighs> that's such a funny scene so hilarious so then uh we get a scene where marty is interviewing their drummer who again is named mick shrimpton he's the one on tour with them and marty's just asking like hey so are you scared does it worry you that all their drummers in the past have you know died and mick admits like you know well when i when i came onto the band they did tell me like this is how it is but you know I mean, what are the chances? And Marty's like, yeah, that's right. Like the law of average says that you will survive. <laughs> so then we, we get some footage of them on the tour bus. And this is where Janine is being really needy. And David like really wants to go sit with the band and the groupies. But Janine is kind of keeping him for herself. And she's like, no, you were reading. You can read here. And so that's kind of happening. And David, you can see that David's feeling conflicted. It's very obvious that Nigel and Janine don't get along, uh, but David obviously is Nigel's best friend and Janine is his girlfriend, so he actually says, like, they would actually get along really well if they would just communicate better, which, of course, that's everyone's excuse for when your two friends don't like each other. Yeah. Some people just don't vibe with you, okay? He knows that they would get along if they just tried to get along, but they neither of them really seem interested in trying to get along. Yeah, it's almost evident that they don't really want to try to get along, in my opinion. I side with Nigel because I don't really feel like Jan- Janine's not an asset to the band. Janine, the band will be fine without her, not the other way around. A hundred percent agree. She brings nothing. We get a little further into the movie, and they perform another one of my honorable mentions, which is Heavy Duty. And they have a album signing, which nobody comes to. It's literally an empty store, completely quiet. Nobody shows up. Very unfortunate. That made me feel bad, actually. Oh, I know. I know. Me too. They all looked so snazzy. And, like, there was, like, just stacks and stacks of their albums just waiting to be signed and nobody was there and it just yeah it just breaks my heart because you know it makes me think of like bands that we've gone and seen or like you know gigs we've gone to where there's like no one there like the band's not hyped up you know no but you're right and like granted if you're a good dedicated band you'll play to a, a audience of one being your mother but it does take a toll on a band's psyche when they're hyped up for a show and nobody comes to see them. Uh, you know, it's it's never easy. But I think every band goes through it at least once. Yeah, I feel like it's almost like a rite of passage. Like, you got to play shitty shows before you can play, you know, like, huge venues like Toyota Center. Yeah, yeah. You have to have the rough draft before you have the best seller. There you go. It's kind of like an earning your stripes, if you will. 
Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. up and coming bands. Like everyone's going to play a shitty show. Everyone's going to, you know, get kicked off of a bill. Everyone's going to have to chop their set list in half. Like everyone goes through the hardships of being a band. Uh, another super iconic scene in this film that I fucking love is the Xanadu Star Theater in Cleveland. Yes. The, <laughs> the band get lost on the way to the stage. And it's just so funny because they're like, rock and roll, Cleveland. (laughs) And they're just wandering through what looks like, they look like they went way too far. They are in the maintenance. Like they went, they look like they're in the basement. Yeah. I don't know how they got there, but they're all wandering around. They got their guitars, drumsticks, and then they run into a maintenance man. And they're like, oh, we're trying to get to the stage. And he's like, oh, so he gives them these really complicated directions and he's like oh just go down that way two doors and then authorized personnel that's the stage so then they're like okay rock and roll and they try to go find it and they make a circle and they find the maintenance man again (laughs) and he's like you must have made a wrong turn (laughs) and so so we never actually see them get to the stage ever (laughs) so we cut away from that but that shit is so funny and i remember and i know you remember this too frankie um when VH1 did I Love the 80s, that was the scene that they highlighted. For yes! Oh, I love yes. that. Nostalgia. After they get lost, uh, they're all kind of sitting around at a diner. They're talking about how to revamp the set and the the performances in the band. And Janine's got these ideas, but nobody really likes him except for David. But then Nigel pulls out a napkin and he starts drawing Stonehenge. And he wants to have a giant set of, like, a giant replica of Stonehenge for their stage, for their next performances. So he draws it out on a napkin, and he specifies how tall he wants it. Ian takes the napkin. He's like, okay, fine, I'll take care of it. And so then later on, they're in Austin, and uh, Polly, who has designed the set piece, is showing Ian what looks like a model of the set piece, or I guess as Zoolander would say, a stone hedge for ants. <laughs> and, and Ian's like, so is this? Is it going to be this color? Is the actual piece going to be? She's like, what do you mean the, the actual piece? She's like, this is what you asked for. This is the piece. And he's like, this is the piece? Are you fucking kidding me? She's like, yeah, look, I followed the napkin. She shows him the napkin. Nigel specified that he wanted the Stonehenge to be 18 inches. Oh, God. He mistook the one apostrophe for, like, he thought two meant feet when it actually means inches. So. (laughs) So in the very next scene... Uh, we cut to uh, the beginning of the performance of my next song, which I think this is probably, I mean, they're, I feel like they're all my favorite. I feel like I keep saying that. Stonehenge is definitely one of the top. Yeah. In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history. Everyone looks great. The whole band is in cloaks and they have this really amazing glitter eyeshadow and it all looks very mystical. And so we see like the band is ready to play and and Nigel's doing his spoken part of the song. And we see Janine and Ian are standing off to the wing. And 
as soon as the song picks up, all the band drop their cloaks and they start just ripping into this performance. Nigel looks beautiful and he uh, he does this like kind of spoken pre-chorus mm-hmm. from overhead as the song kind of calms back down and these little people come out to dance to Stonehenge. The 18-inch set <laughs> replica of Stonehenge <laughs> lowers onto the stage from overhead and lands next to Nigel. And David, David's jaw just drops because he's watching it come down and he's just like, what the fuck? And then it's not until the little people are dancing around it that the little people are actually taller than it and they're almost tripping over it that Nigel looks down and he's like, what? (laughs) They're pissed. (laughs) The band is not happy about this, but, you know. It was already said and done, so they just keep going with the performance. What are you going to do? In retrospect, Derek, Nigel, and David said that they really wish Ian would have scrapped the Stonehenge scenery completely because otherwise the performance, in their opinion, was actually really great. One thing that the band made abundantly clear on the commentary, they said that Spinal Tap disputes any critical claims that they are not romantic. They refer to themselves as being classic romantic using classic sources. The band believes that you can listen to music and get a history lesson at the same time and not even know it. (laughs) One thing that I did want to note, Nigel is playing an explorer in this performance, and it's very similar to the explorer that Alan had. David says that he has kept in touch with one of the little people from the Stonehenge performance, uh, he is now in sales. Oh, well. Uh, one thing that I did want to note, uh, nonfiction note that I wanted to point out. Uh, many believe that this scene, that this Stonehenge performance is a parody of the Stonehenge sets used by Black Sabbath during their Born Again tour. Black Sabbath actually accused them of stealing the idea even though the movie was released within days of that tour beginning. But they, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And Rob, like Rob Reiner said that they called him and said that, oh, you stole the idea. And he's like, actually, no, but that's, that's a nice thought. Um, there, is specu- there is speculation that Led Zeppelin's final two U.S. tours at the Oakland Coliseum from July 1977 were actually the inspiration for this. Because uh, in addition to them having a model of Stonehenge on their set, they also had large banners of images of Stonehenge. Aerosmith is another band who uh, tried to claim that the idea was stolen from them because at the time they had an album called Rock in a Hard Place and they thought that the imagery was similar to their album cover. Uh, I think a lot of musicians are just full of themselves. Yeah, I was going to say goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and of course Gene Simmons took credit for basically the whole movie. Well, yeah. Duh, that's obvious. Yeah, he's an idiot. So at this point, the band is pissed at Ian. Ian quits. 
because David has the nerve to bring up, like, well, why don't we get you uh, someone to help you manage the band? And, you know, she's already here, and she's already dedicated, and they realize that he's talking about his girlfriend, Janine, and Ian is not going to stand for this. He's like, I'm not going to work alongside her if, you know, I, he's like, I quit. So he walks out, and I love this, um, I love when the argument comes to an end, because Ian leaves the room, it gets really quiet, and then Derek Derek, I think, asks a very practical question, one that I would ask if I were him, if I were in that room. He, uh, he breaks the silence and he says, can I raise a practical question at this point? Are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow? <laughs> and David's like, no, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge. <laughs> he cracks my shit up. Every time. In case it's not obvious, Derek is my favorite because it's Harry Shearer from The Simpsons. Yes. I love, love, love Harry. <laughs> so the band goes on with Janine as their manager. And this is not boding well with Nigel. He feels like David is distracted. He feels like David can't work his best because she's watching over him. And he's just not a big fan of this. So she ends up booking them a gig at an army base because their original gig fell through at the Civic Arena. So they show up at this army base where Fred Willard uh, welcomes them. And uh, they play one of my honorable mentions, which is Sex Farm. And during this performance, Nigel gets pissed off because their sound gets all fucked. And he takes his guitar off, he slams it onto the ground, and he walks off stage during the song. Yep very upsetting moment the very next morning David says like we're not going to work together again and he's replaceable and David really doesn't seem to care so by now the band goes to Stockton California for their gig at theme land which is an amusement park and now the band is a four-piece but Janine is going to play tambourine for them so it is a five-piece again kind of yeah. <laughs> and I love when they show up because the marquee says Puppet show and spinal tap. Yeah. Sorry. And Janine's like, I told him once, I told him a hundred times to put spinal tap first and puppet show last. (laughs) (laughs) So she's just pissed because, yeah, it was just a small request. Um, The band, we see the band kind of trying to rework their set without Nigel and try to figure out, like, how they're going to work it around him and, and kind of fill in for the sound that he's not playing. And so they end up, uh, they, I can't even describe what they try to play without him, but it just sounds like shit and everybody hates it. And so finally the end of the tour has come and they're having like a party to celebrate the end of the tour. And they pretty much, it, they pretty much decided like spinal tap is kind of over but David refuses to say that it's the end because, well, how can you determine the end? And, you know, yeah. it, the end is, in yeah, it's indeterminate. So he's not confidently saying that the band is done. But him and Derek start talking about, well, now now it's time to do all the things that we didn't have time to do because we were busy doing Spinal Tap. Like, they have a really good idea for a musical version of Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's called Saucy Jack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so they're gonna. So they want to write that. They, they have a song for it and everything, and they want to go ahead and write that script. 
So, you know, Derek says it's time to, to start working on their other things. And so finally we cut to a very somber moment. They're backstage. It's their last show. They're getting ready. They're just kind of sitting there waiting to go on. And I love Derek because he's like tuning his bass. And he, he says a line that just breaks my heart every time. And it, it brings a little tear to my eye, even though this is a comedy. He, um, he's tuning his bass. He looks over at David and he says, we'll make them miss us. <laughs> and it just makes me sad. <laughs> and then Nigel walks in. And they're all like, okay. And it gets kind of quiet and awkward. And Nigel says, I'm just a messenger. I ran into Ian. And David's like, oh, Ian, yeah, the other dead guy. And Nigel's like, well, he wanted me to tell you that um, Sex Farm is on the charts in Japan. <clears throat> we were, we're at number five. <laughs> so Nigel really draws this out. He's like, Ian asked me to ask you if you would be interested in reforming and going on tour in Japan. And David is David is very much like he wants to be mad. He he's he's in this mode right now where he doesn't want solutions. He just wants to lash out. So instead of answering Nigel, he just says like, "Oh, is that why you're here? You're are you here to put our band on life support? Are you here to save the day?" And so he starts accusing him of all this stuff. And Nigel's like, oh, "I'm just trying to trying to tell you what I heard, whatever." And so they don't answer him. They leave to go on stage. This is when they break into my last song for the film. Tonight, I'm gonna rock you tonight. Yes. So the song starts and the crowd is live and the lights go down and the drums come in and the guys are on stage and we see that Nigel is actually in the wings watching. And as the song goes on and the lyrics come in, David starts singing. Nigel is mouthing them. You know, and you can tell that he misses being up there. And you can tell that he wants to be up there. Right. And, you know, it's second nature to him. He, can't, he looks like he can't help but sing along. And... So the guys go into the song a bit more and then finally David's playing and he looks over into the wings and he motions for Nigel to come on stage and join them again. So in this emotional, amazing moment, Nigel grabs a guitar and he rejoins the band and they start playing together and he goes into his signature solo and it's awesome. And then we cut to a shot of the drummer, and he explodes. <laughs> and then we cut to their tour in Japan, and they have a new drummer, and his name is Joe Mama Besser, and he's a fucking hoss, and he's going off on the drums. And the guys are singing tonight, I'm going to rock you tonight, to a crowd in Japan. And it's badass. It's awesome. And these guys are fucking... They look so alive. They look the happiest they've been the entire film. 
Like they're giving it their all, this performance. Like they are so appreciative of these fans that gave them a second life, like a second wind. And they're giving them like their money's worth at this fucking show. Like this is an amazing show. I wish I was at this show. Yeah, the energy is just epic. It's awesome. Think of the best concert you've ever been to, guys, and turn it up to 11. (laughs) (laughs) I had to. (laughs) I love it. A couple of quick notes. Um, This is the song that begins the film. It's also the song that ends the film. David is wearing a very interesting looking guitar strap for this performance. It's got a lot of like leather fringe. Um, David on commentary says that the strap was borrowed and he admits that it does look like something Davy Crockett would wear if he played guitar. (laughs) One thing that the band is very, very grateful for, they're so, so glad that they finally got footage of the drummer spontaneously combusting because no one would believe them when they said it happened. Of course not. Yeah. Evidence. So now it's on film and it's for real. And again, we need to bring awareness to this. We do. It's a problem. Let's make that a goal in 2021. I think we can have make that happen. Yes. And then uh, after that performance, we go into our closing credits. And alongside the closing credits are interviews with the band. So it's just Marty asking them random questions. And the band just goes on to fill in a few more curiosities before the film does end. And that was Final Tap. <laughs> Great job. So some fun facts about the film, and these are all for real facts. So (laughs) these are nonfiction facts, I guess. Is that redundant? I don't know. Not redundant. (laughs) Necessary. So some fun facts about This is Final Tap. Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Rob Reiner were given $10,000 to write the script. They went on to make a 20-minute short film version of the documentary so that they could show how the improv would be incorporated. Some of the scenes created in the demo are actually in the final film, and lots of the dialogue is ad-libbed. I love that. I love that they're actually, like, truly (laughs) ad-libbed. It just makes it one of a kind, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes this movie so special. On Rollingstone.com, there is a list called... 11 trends that Spinal Tap predicted, and one of them is having a black album cover. David St. Hubbins specifically called out Metallica for releasing a black album when he saw them at a show. He asked where they got the idea. Kirk Hammond awkwardly coughed and claimed that it was an homage. What? Yeah, that really happened. Like, he, again, guys, they do show up to places in character, so... Technically, yes, like Michael McKean dressed up as David St. Hubbins and asked Metallica why they copied Spinal Tap. That is fucking hilarious. I fucking love them so, so much. Um, Because this film was actually improvised by the majority of the performers, the four principal writers of the script, that being Rob Reiner, Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and Christopher Guest, The four of them asked the Writers Guild to properly credit everyone for the script. However, the board of directors voted to keep the credits as they were, with only four of them being listed as the writers. That is really big that they would do that. Like, I think that's amazing that they wanted to give credit to everyone. Yeah, I thought that was really sweet. Unfortunately, that's how that worked out. But they tried, so. Yeah, yeah. So, A for effort. (laughs) 
Um, I do think it's important to note that all the actors are also skilled musicians and they are all performing the songs on the soundtrack. So amazing. I love when they do that. Yes, that authenticity, you know? Mm-hmm. It just it, it pushes it up over the edge, you know? And speaking of the soundtrack, there was some soundtrack drama around this film in recent years. And I know I was hearing mumblings about it, and Frankie, I'm sure you did too. Harry Shearer began the legal proceedings against Vivendi, which is the parent company of Universal Music, because he, McKean, Guest, and Reiner had only received $98 for soundtrack royalties and $81 in merch sales between the years of 1984 and 2006. Yeah, so three, almost three decades. Mm-hmm. And so uh, once Harry Shearer kind of got the ball rolling on the legalities, the three others joined him on the lawsuit, which was seeking out $400 million in damages. And finally, on September 17th, 2020, both parties were able to reach a settlement. The creators of Spinal Tap have since gone on to create a new licensing company to manage the rights to the film and music. Good for them. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to know that they weren't all talk. Like, they went on and they went the extra mile and they were going to do something about it. I'm glad. I mean, I feel like it kind of paves the road for other people who think that they can take advantage. Yeah, yeah, because music rights is such a bitch when you when you really look into it. Yes. Fans of this film include Joe Perry of Aerosmith, The Edge from U2, and Sting. Steven Tyler was offended when he saw it, and Ozzy Osbourne thought it was a real documentary. Of course he did. Why? <laughs> Why was he offended? Did it say why? See, Joe Perry says that Steven Tyler didn't get it. Oh, well, he's an idiot. Like, Joe Perry, Joe Perry said that the first time he watched it was with his wife, and he was crying, laughing, like, his, he, he was in hysterics. And so he told Steven that he needed to watch this movie. And he was kind of surprised at how Steven was reacting to it because Steven agreed with the band a lot. Which just kind of makes me laugh because I can totally see Steven Tyler being like, I, I don't want, it's like, I want bigger bread. This is, this bread's too small. <laughs> like the scene where Nigel has the small bread and he's like, what is this? I can't eat this. I don't want this. I can absolutely, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's a Steven. One little fun fact about this film on IMDb, this is Spinal Tap's IMDb page. The movie has a special scale that goes up to 11. (laughs) But if you want to rate it, the highest rating you can actually give it is 10. Right now it sits at 7.9 out of 11 stars. That is too funny that it goes up to 11. Yeah, I love that little, uh, that little, what do you call it, Easter egg? (laughs) Yeah. In 2002, the Library of Congress selected This Is Spinal Tap for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry. That's huge. This film is ranked number one on Entertainment Weekly's top 50 cult films of all time. What? Ah, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, I would have guessed top 10 for sure, but number one, that's amazing. That's huge. This film is included in the book 1001 movies you must see before you die. Oh, bet your ass it is, yeah. 
throughout the film, Nigel is seen wearing a shirt that says Norman's Rare Guitars. This place is the guitar shop that provided many of the guitars in the film. Spinal Tap has gone on to make many appearances. Many performances have been done. Uh, they've popped up on Saturday Night Live. They've been on talk shows. When they do interviews, it tends to be in character, wigs and all. It's amazing. Um, it's especially amazing now that, like, obviously they've aged, and so their characters have aged, too. So I saw uh, one of the more recent interviews with them where they're obviously Spinal Tap, but they're older. So, like, Derek's uh, mutton chops are gray, and his hair is gray, and I just think it's kind of precious. Aww. Oh, I just love them. I love them. They're so timeless, but they, they look great. They still look great. I'm going to post as many appearances of them as I can on the blog, whatever interviews I can find, because I just think it's so funny to watch them. They're doing legit interviews with real interviewers on TV, but they're playing these characters. That's what makes them so epic, and this is why I thought they were a real band for so long. They are dedicated to the craft, and I admire them so much for it. So in addition to making appearances such as, you know, performing live and talk shows and Saturday Night Live, they've also crossed over into animation. They were in a Simpsons episode. I knew it. <laughs> and of course they had to be because Harry Shearer is a regular cast member on The Simpsons. Yes. So it's season three, episode 22. If you go back and watch the auto show, Bart and Milhouse go to a Spinal Tap concert. And it's, it's not a very long scene, guys, but it is so fucking funny. Please <laughs> Uh, if I can't find it on YouTube, please, by any means, go watch it. It's so funny. It's on Disney Plus, guys. Yes, it is on Disney Plus. Once again, Simpsons Season 3, Episode 22. And uh, one other show that I had to mention that Spinal Tap has been referenced in, I should say, The Goldbergs. Oh, of course. There is a hilarious episode, Season 6, Episode 20. It is called This Is, this is Spinal Tap. And it's basically an episode where Adam's big sister and big brother form a band and they ask Adam to document it, but he realizes that they're all really stupid and they don't know anything about music. So he purposely starts to like capture them in a really unflattering light until he realizes that they actually really take this seriously and it's like a sentimental thing. <laughs> Uh, and fun fact, there is a scene where they do get lost on the way to the stage, and the maintenance man that they run into is the same man from the film. Hilarious. I had to reference those two because those are, like, two of my favorites. I love it. <laughs> All right, guys, if you are still with me, I just have one more fun fact, and I think this is actually probably the funnest fact. Um, and this is actually something that I read about years ago that every now and then I look up the story just to read it because I think it's funny. Oh, I'm excited to hear. For those of you who may not know, the man who plays Nigel Tufnell in this film is an actor named Christopher Guest, and he is married to Scream Queen Jamie Lee Curtis. <gasps> yes, I did know this. <laughs> yes, and so one day, Jamie Lee Curtis and her husband Christopher Guest walked into a Tesla dealership. No, this is not a joke. They walked into a Tesla dealership 
and they were sitting in a car, uh, Jamie Lee at the driver's seat, and Christopher was next to her, and the Tesla rep was kind of introducing them to all the features of the car, and he insisted that Jamie turn up the AC and turn up the volume on the radio, and when she turned them up all the way to max, she realized that they go to 11. (laughs) And when she realized this, the rep said, yeah, Elon Musk is a really big fan of some movie. What? Um, And Jamie Lee, (gasps) Jamie Lee looked at Christopher and she was like, really? That's crazy. Now they both own Teslas. Of course they do. Oh my god, that is hilarious. I remember when I first heard that story, I thought it was made up. I was like, this is something someone made up on Reddit, like this, whatever. There's no way, right? No, she, not only was it on a notable, like, very reputable source, but she also went on Graham Norton and told the story in person. I will post the clip. It's so funny. So... With that, uh, I think that does conclude this episode. Frankie, anything you want to add? You guys are awesome. We're so excited to see where 2021 goes with the podcast. And thank you again for your patience for us getting our very first episode of 2021. In case you haven't noticed, guys, we are starting off our 2021 season with a brand new theme song. Yay! Thank you, Jarek. Yes, super, super big thank yous and all the love to our friend Jarek, who not only composed our first theme song that we've been using up until this point, but he also did our logo and he also helped us uh, tweak the logo for our stickers. And now we have this new amazing theme song that he helped us put together and we are super duper appreciative to him. He took all of our visions and just made them come true. We are so grateful, Jarek. Yes, yes. Thank you super so much. We cannot thank you enough. I am in the process of editing our new episode, and I I can't get very far because I just keep going back and listening to that sweet-ass 30 seconds. You know what? I think he needs to be like an honorable, like, we need to honor him like every episode. Like, and here's to Jarek or something (laughs) like that. And um, also, Jarek, you have a soundtrack city shirt coming to you soon i have been working on our design for our shirts and i have officially found our design that's going to work on our shirts and so i will be making them soon misa (gasps) so we can have those as well that is super exciting okay jarek gets dibs on the very first one he absolutely does well deserved yay oh my gosh super exciting okay okay 2021 it might not be so bad after all that's the slogan (laughs) can't be worse uh let's not make that the slogan no (laughs) just in case I feel like we need to put that energy out there though like it it can't be we all have to agree like this is going to be a better year than last year we just need to speak it into existence yeah I mean they do say that when you're that far down you can only go up so fingers crossed guys good thoughts good thoughts so yeah, thank you again, Jarek, and we are just so excited to um, start our 2021 season. Yeah, yeah, good things are coming. So guys, we hope that 2021 treats you well. We hope it's been treating you well so far. Uh, I know it's been a heavy three weeks, but I think tomorrow we're going to wake up with a 
with an abandoned feeling that we used to call hope. And I think we all can have a little sense of it again now. I'm super excited. I'm optimistic. All right, guys. Well, we hope you have a great night. Thanks for hanging out with us. This is Frankie. And this was Misa. Bye.